All right, everyone, welcome to MRAP November 2022. Swami and I are full of thanks to have all of you with us. Swami, what do you have thanks for this month? I am thankful to have you back on the show. It was nice. Last month, we had Jess here, and it was great to chat with Jess. She had a great case. But of course, Jan, like, you know, we have this connection. So I'm very thankful to have you back to do our month together with. Oh, that is so nice. I am thankful to be back just right along with you. It's all nothing but good feelings, although I feel like I sort of plugged that to give <laughs> to make you say what you said. But I honestly, folks, I really didn't. T H A K Y O U. Thank you. I do feel bad, Jen. As you know, I sent my Halloween candy this year to Jess instead of to you. Mm. Missed October, and that's what happens when you miss October. You're going to have to wait for the next year. That's okay. There are lots of good treats coming to me in late November, so I'm looking forward to those. Absolutely. Well, I do have a bit of a treat for you. I have a really challenging case for us to get into. I am super ready. The case. All right, so this is a case that came in very close to the end of shift. It's about 7 a.m., and EMS calls us with a pre-notification. 57-year-old man with syncope. I'm kind of like, you're calling me for a 57-year-old with syncope? And then they gave me the vital signs. Heart rate 62, BP 85 on 40, SATs 99%, finger sticks 117, will be there in about four minutes. And they tell me that he looks a little pale, a little sweaty, they don't see any signs of trauma, not even any head trauma. He's moving everything, and they're gonna be there soon. And so, of course, I'm thinking, this is not what I expected near the end of my shift. What do I have to get ready before this guy hits the door? Well, with that blood pressure, of course, I'm thinking, okay, I need probably one of a recess bay, some kind of, you know, one of your rooms that you can do some resuscitation in. I'm probably calling my EKG tech to be on standby. I'm telling the RNs to be ready. We need a, you know, a rapid IV. I'd probably like the ultrasound by the bedside. But I'm also thinking, hmm, that blood pressure and that heart rate don't quite go together. I mean, a heart rate of 62 with a hypotension, that's a little odd. So I'm probably asking myself, is this patient maybe on beta blockers? That's probably the most common reason. Or could it be something more unusual? Or is just one of the numbers just wrong? I think that's exactly the point that hit me. Hypotension and bradycardia, of course, 57. So beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, clearly at play. Not just an overdose, but just the patient's tachycardia is being masked by them being on one of these medications. And so the patient arrives, and it's pretty much exactly as billed by EMS. He's awake, he's talking, but he doesn't look great. He's very kind of pale. He's definitely sweaty. We immediately drop two large bore IVs. And I mean, real large bore jam. We put in a couple of 16 gauges. We start some fluids. We've got pressers ready to go. The family's there and they say he's got a history of high blood pressure. He was totally fine last night. This morning, woke up, was complaining of a little bit of back pain, but they were visiting the city and they're like, nope, we're taking our day. We're getting out there. He really wanted to get out and see the city. And so they just left. And then all of a sudden he's getting the paper and he collapses. And other than that, there's not really much history. Vital signs are about the same in the emergency department. His heart rate's in the 60s, BP's 80 on 40. There's no fever. And when we get an ECG, it just shows sinus rhythm. No ischemic changes, nothing for me to be like, we're going to the cath lab. We got to do something else I can't handle. And so this patient is in front of me. And now I'm thinking, what do I need to do next? I've started the initial resuscitation, but where am I moving next? So the EKG showing sinus rhythm is good news. I'm glad to hear that he has no ischemia. That sort of crosses one thing off my list, but back pain plus hypotension is never a good thing. 
I'd like to send some labs, but as long as I'm getting IV access with those 16 gauges, which I'd like to know what his heart rate did when they slammed those babies in. <laughs> do I have a point of care hemoglobin? Because I'd like to get that as soon as possible to get an idea of what that number is, at least ballpark. They're not the most reliable, but at least a ballpark. And then I'd like to get that ultrasound probe gelled up and put it on that belly and kind of start there and start looking around. It's exactly what we were thinking. We didn't have a point of care hemoglobin, but we can get a blood gas really quick to give us a crit. So we send that off. We know it's going to be a couple of minutes before we get those results. We drop the ultrasound probe. And when I do this, what I'm thinking is I've got undifferentiated shock and I go right to that rush algorithm. So I'm looking at the heart and the IVC. I'm looking at Morrison's pouch. Maybe there's some occult trauma that, that we're not hearing about. Take a peek at his aorta, look at his pulmonary windows. And Jen, this one wasn't a hard one. As soon as we drop this probe on his belly, we see an enormous aorta. In, in fact, at first I was like, oh, that must be the bladder. But no, we were too high for it to be the bladder. The aorta is huge. There might be a trace of free fluid around it. So we're thinking this guy's got a ruptured AAA. There's blood. And, and I don't know how much blood because maybe it's he's bled retroperitoneally and I'm not seeing that on ultrasound. But with that blood pressure, I'm assuming that there's quite a bit of blood in this guy's belly. Yeah. And so that's interesting because I, the first time I heard this, this phenomenon of bradycardia, hypotension, blood in the belly was really in describing patients with ectopics. That's I remember the first time I kind of learned that you won't always necessarily see the tachycardia that you're expecting with a low blood pressure and a patient with an ectopic because of blood in the belly causing some kind of vagal response. And so I'm thinking that that's what's going on is it's that same kind of presentation. But if you're seeing blood in the belly, so I'm getting blood, I'm going to be transfusing right away. I'm now presuming even if I don't know what the hemoglobin is, that it's low. So I'm going to start transfusing and I'm getting on the horn with a consultant. That is my number one goal. I absolutely agree. That is exactly what we need because what this guy has is something that I can't fix. I cannot fix that ruptured AAA. We know that ruptured AAA, the mortality is really high. And, and I think you hit right on it with this vital signs that just don't match that hypotension and bradycardia. Blood in the belly is one of the things we should be thinking of that vagal response. And honestly, I guess I could have chalked this up and said, this is a vasovagal response, but of course that's not what the chart says. It's not a vasovagal response, but it is vaguely mediated that low heart rate that goes along with it. And so we did exactly what you said. We switched over to blood. We grabbed the rapid infuser and we're pounding products into them. We call vascular surgery, but it is a Saturday morning. They're not in-house and it's going to be a little bit of a delay in him getting to the emergency department. But what I do always have, Jan, is I always have trauma and acute care surgery. So even though I don't have the vascular surgeon, I just called whatever surgeon I got because maybe they can help me out. So I call the trauma acute care surgeons and they're either a couple of flights up or they're on the floor that I'm on. So they said, We'll be there in two minutes. And I'm thinking, you know, I need somebody who can cut because this ruptured AAA, it's not that different than a gunshot wound. Like if he got a gunshot wound and hit his aorta, it's kind of the same physiology. So maybe my trauma acute care surgeon can be the bridge until the vascular surgeon gets there. So I, all I want is a surgeon, somebody who knows what to do with a knife in their hand. And that person is there immediately at the bedside. Yeah, the, you know, the old trauma surgery world has really morphed into the acute care surgery world, and they are really redefining themselves and doing more and more. You know, the old journal of trauma is now the journal of trauma and acute care surgery. So, you know, they are rebranding themselves. And in our hospital, they, they want to be called for really any surgical patient that's really, really sick, including the vascular ones, so they can at least get the ball rolling on the surgical side of things. They recognize that they're the ones in-house. They can help out their colleagues. And it's great for everybody's education. And, you know, they want to be useful. They're, they're there. So, you know, give us a call. We can help. 
So while I'm waiting for my trauma acute care surgeon to hit the door, we're thinking we want to push the blood pressure up, but not too high because there's a hole somewhere and I don't want to push that blood through the hole that more, whether that makes a difference or not, who knows, right? I, I don't know if that's actually going to change anything, but as we are infusing the blood, the patient starts to Brady down, the blood pressure starts to go down. The acute care trauma surgeon walks in the door as all this is happening. And I think it's easy enough to just kind of jump into ACLS when the patient arrests, but we kind of know what's going on here. I don't think epi and chest compressions are really going to do much to save this patient. And so I kind of looked at the trauma surgeon and said, do you think we should open the chest? And she kind of looked at me saying, you mean open the chest and cross clamp the aorta? And as she's saying it, she is already opening the bundle, the kit for the thoracotomy to do that procedure. And I'm like, I guess that's what we should do. So that's what we did. We opened the chest and cross clamped the aorta, kind of thinking I can't open the guy's belly and do something in the space that I'm in, but we have all of the kit, we have a thoracotomy tray, so maybe that's the right thing to do. And so that is exactly what the trauma surgeon did. And I gotta say that the speed with which the trauma team moved to open this guy's chest, to cross clamp the aorta, really with very minimal information. We had an ultrasound, which we showed them, showing this massive AAA, and now the patient's arrested. So we jump in, we open the chest, we cross clamp the aorta, and that's where we are at this point while we're still waiting for vascular surgery to hit the door. Wow, so this isn't good. I mean, as soon as you're cross-clipping someone's aorta, <laughs> things aren't good, but Never it's what good. you gotta do. Never good. I'm just curious how things looked inside. what did they see? Well, the heart was pretty empty. And I guess we kind of knew that that must be what's happening, right? All of the blood must have leaked out into the belly. The heart's pretty empty. So I imagine that's where the entire blood volume is. With the aorta cross-clamp, we do start to see a little bit of filling as we are pounding blood in that level one infuser. So we start doing open cardiac massage and the heart starts beating on its own. We, we didn't even shock, we didn't give the intracardiac epi. It just starts beating again as it fills, which kind of tells me the heart's still pretty good. It just needed volume. So at this point, vascular is very close to being there, but is not there yet. I kind of look at the trauma surgeon and she's like, well, I'm just gonna take the patient up to the OR, get them prepped for the vascular surgeon. That's the best that I can do. I can't fix this but at least I can get everything ready. And so they whisk the patient upstairs with this heart kind of open and beating on its own while waiting for vascular surgery to hit the door. Amazing. I think the other thing I was thinking about as you're describing this bleeding patient going up to the OR is I might also make sure that the massive transfusion protocol, the MTP has been activated and that that cooler and you know blood products, the blood banks aware because these are the cases that take you know, 20, 30 units of blood. So that's important to also get going for them. After the case, one of the things that, that kind of hit me, and every time I think about this case, I think about it again, is what would I have done if I was somewhere else? Because, you know, where I work, where you work, I have every consultant at a phone call away. You know, this vascular surgeon was 30 minutes away. That's really not that bad. I know they're going to be there eventually. I can get anything I want. Would I have done the same thing if I was in a rural hospital? And to get that vascular surgeon, I got to transfer the patient. Would I have opened the chest and cross-clamped the aorta on my own? I mean, it is within my skill set, but What's the outcome for the patient in that kind of a situation where, okay, I cross-clamped and I've given all the blood that I've got, and now I got to transfer the patient half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour away. And I think that's a really hard thing to determine. And I don't know that I can make that decision because I haven't worked in a place where I really need to do that. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear from some of our colleagues that work in those scenarios. I think the answer is generally no, you wouldn't go that far unless you you know, you really have an established plan because I think surgeons feel also really cornered when you do that because now, you know, they have to get involved. They can't, you know, not get involved with a patient like that. But to begin with, the prognosis is so grim 
that you know you're consuming a lot of resources, not just the consultant services, but also the blood products, et cetera. So you know, when do you sort of stop the resuscitation and say enough's enough? It probably depends on where you work, what resources exactly you have, what agreements you maybe have with these transferring places or how close they actually are. But I think a lot of really rural places wouldn't do that. And I don't think I would blame them for not doing it for all of the things that you just said, unless you have the disposition of who's going to take care of this patient next really well laid out. I think it's a hard call to pull the trigger and have an open chest in your department. Agree. So what happened with the patient, Jan? You know, he went to the OR. They were able to repair the defect in the aorta. There was a massive amount of blood in the belly. The patient's blood, as well as a lot of the blood that we probably gave him as well, the aorta was measured at somewhere around eight centimeters. So this was a pretty big aorta that popped without the patient having really any history of a AAA as far as we knew. Unfortunately, the patient did have a multi-system organ dysfunction. We talked about it up front. The mortality in a ruptured AAA is nearing 90%. It's, it's not a, a good prognosis. And he did make it for a while. The, the upside of it was his family that wasn't in town was able to come and see him, but they did decide to withdraw care about a week later. And I don't know, it's a lot of resources to put into something when you know the mortality is so high. At the same time, in the moment, not what was going through our heads. It wasn't going through our heads. There's very little chance this guy makes it. What was really going through our heads is, can we possibly get him to the operating room? That's what we have to do. And I think everybody was on board with it. Nobody pushed back and said, we shouldn't have taken this guy to the OR. We shouldn't have opened his chest and cross-clamped his aorta. It was really a matter of, well, we gave it our best shot. I think that's completely reasonable, especially he was only 57 years old. You know, if you put an 80-year-old or, you know, someone much older in this position, I think there's also some other ethical and other judgment calls that come into it. But, you know, it's all about timing. There's a lot of ischemia that happens here. I've heard cases like this that have pulled through, but often they do have some complication like, you know, ischemia to their spinal arteries. And now they have some paralysis or neurodeficit or they go on dialysis because of renal failure. So even if they come out of it, they're not going to come out of it well. But overall, most of them don't come out of it. The prognosis is just so grim. And of course, try to take a couple of things away from this, because what's the chance that I'm going to get another one of these cases in my career? It's pretty low. Of course, saying that means that I've just cursed myself to see it the next shift. But it's pretty unlikely that I'm going to see another case like this. But there's still a lot that I think we can learn from it. That absence of tachycardia doesn't mean that the patient isn't bleeding, whether it is that the beta blockers are covering it up or calcium channel blockers covering it up. Or if they have that vagal response and they have that relative bradycardia, we still have to be concerned when we see hypotension, whether they're tachycardic or not, that it could be due to blood. Obviously, POCUS was huge here, and I was very fortunate to have a very adept resident with POCUS getting great images. Any patient with undifferentiated shock, we should be reaching for ultrasound. Do that rush exam because you often find things that you don't expect to find. And then finally, just think about the resources that you do have. Our vascular surgeon was 30 to 45 minutes away, but the acute care surgeon is right there. And there's so many things that they can do to help. They can even help just with saying, is this a good idea or not for us to push further? And so we really owe a lot to our surgery colleagues. If you work in a place like we do, our trauma surgery colleagues are so essential to the functioning of our departments, especially when you have less consultants in-house. So just don't forget what resources you have and that you can call on when you have a case like this. Lots to learn. And thank you for sharing the case with us. Great case. Absolutely. It was a good case to think about. And Jana, honestly, I don't think a week goes by where I don't think about this case again. And so many patients that I see where I'm like, oh, oh, I know what that means. Hypotension and bradycardia. I know what that means. And it just helps us to really think about how to take care of that patient. 
let's move from the case into our highlights for the month. Jen, my favorite piece was the one on left bundle branch block and MI that Brit Guest and Amal did. Yeah, I like that one too. I'll be honest, the Scarbosa criteria are always something I have a hard time remembering for some reason. So I thought it was a great review. I like the piece that you did with Whit Fisher on enemas and insects. And I'm not going to give it away, <laughs> but that title has to win some kind of MRAPI award this year. Well, I always know that the segments that we get to do with Wit are your favorite segments, <laughs> just because you like to say, hand me the Wit Fisher. I was going to say it, but I feel like I've overplayed my hand on that one, but hand me the Wit Fisher. You, bring me the Wit Fisher. Stack. All right, Jay. Well, with that, we're going to launch into the month and let everybody else listen to these segments and decide what's their favorite. I hope that a lot of people like the enemas and insects and that it delivers as much as I think it's going to deliver. I think people <laughs> are going to really enjoy that one, but you might have your own favorite segment. Either way, it is time for us to drop in. And Jen, I'll see you on the other side. Let's do this. Hey, you don't. I don't. Original composition by Lou. <clears throat> As I sit amongst the branches, look out across November plains, I see myself in a pool of mud, looking across November rains. That one sucked. Yeah, well, you know, deal with it. Rural Medicine Talks. I was coming in for an overnight shift and arrived, took sign out from my colleague. And in the middle of our sign out, the charge nurse comes in and says there's a ambulance coming in with a critically sick burn patient. They're bagging him and he has burns to his face and that's all that we know. And they're about five minutes away. Greetings all, this is Vanessa Cardi back here with another rural medicine piece. And today I have the honor and privilege of introducing a newcomer to the MRAP universe. This is Benjamin Mati. So Benjamin, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, tell us a story? I trained in family medicine in Southern California and then did an acute care fellowship and a POCUS fellowship here. And pretty much have been doing emergency medicine and ICU care in our hospital system here. So this case was shortly after my fellowship, I think maybe weeks after my fellowship in one of the rural hospitals that are as part of our system. So this emergency department is about 20 to 30 minutes away from our level two trauma. It's a small emergency department, about eight beds. Overnight, it's the single coverage. It's just the emergency doc in-house. Sometimes the hospitals will come in to do admissions. There's also deliveries, so sometimes the OB will come in to do deliveries, but a lot of times we're the only ones in-house and end up dealing with those issues as well during the night. Graciously, my older colleague offered to stay to at least assess the case as they came in. So the first thing my colleague and I did was we started assembling our team. We both recognized that this could be a really bad case or it could also sort of be an overcall. It was hard to tell, but we wanted to make sure that we were prepared for really anything. Luckily, this happened right around Sinote, and as happens often in rural settings, staff graciously extended their shifts to help out. There were a bunch of nurses who made themselves available. One was able to work as a scribe. A couple of others were ready to attempt IV access because the paramedics hadn't been able to secure access. And of course, there was a nurse who was ready to work on medications, and they were even so lucky as to have a pharmacist around and an RT. And while all this was going on, 
Ben and his medical colleague were able to put their heads together and try and come up with a plan for taking care of this patient. We realized that airway was probably going to be the first and most critical thing that we would need to assess and potentially address. So we decided to have a, a double setup. So I went to the head of the bed and he started preparing tools for a surgical airway. And he was also preparing and helping the nursing get prepared because the respiratory therapist was pretty much brand new. I made sure that we had a large bore suction and the suction was working, made sure that we had a video laryngoscope and it was on and that we had a rigid stylet. He also had straight and curved blades for laryngoscopy, adjunctive airway equipment, and of course a bougie. The only real hiccup here was that the ultrasound machine was broken. When we were getting set up, I actually had called someone to come and try to fix the ultrasound machine. Then I started talking through the potential airway situations with the respiratory therapist. I talked him through bougie-assisted direct laryngoscopy. I mentioned that we might look with a video laryngoscopy that we might need to switch to direct. And then I mentioned that we might need to proceed with a cricothyrotomy. Right about that time, an ambulance pulled through and my colleague and I saw that there was still a little bit of chaos going on among the staff. So we, we got everybody to sort of bring their level of anticipation down. We made the room quiet. We wanted to start off with a baseline level of calmness because we imagined that that calmness would slowly dissipate into entropy. But we wanted to start with a nice, calm baseline when the paramedics rolled in. The paramedics brought in a, a patient that looked horrible. He was burned and charred on his head, his face, his shoulders, his arms, and his chest. His arms were outstretched and, and he was moaning softly. His nose had been burned off and was completely charred. His lips were completely charred and his face was pretty unrecognizable. It couldn't tell an age. All of his hair was singed off. And it just was a, a shocking scene. And I, and I think everyone, all of the staff, when the doors opened and they wheeled a patient in, were just completely shocked. It's a picture in my mind that, that I won't forget. We got him onto the gurney. The only vital sign we had was sinus tachycardia in like the 180s. There was no IV access. We weren't able to get a blood pressure anywhere because his extremities were burned. We were able to palpate pulses on all four extremities, so at least I knew he was perfusing, probably. Got to work, we, we put him on the monitor as best we could. We got the sinus tachycardia. Somewhere a pulse ox was placed. I, I don't really remember where, but it was 100% and it was a good waveform. The nurses were wonderful. I think we had one or two nurses per extremity, maybe, trying to get an IV. I was at the head of the bed and assessing sort of the airway that we had in front of us. We put a, a high-flow nasal cannula to the area where we thought his nose would be, at least to get a little bit of oxygen flowing. We had the bag valve mask with a PEEP valve on it to provide him some PEEP and oxygen as well. He was spontaneously breathing and moaning and moving all four extremities. So we realized that this was an urgent airway, but probably not an emergent airway. It wasn't going to have respiratory rest imminently. So we had time to optimize the situation to give us the best chance at securing an airway without any complications. So the first thing was getting access to be able to medicate the patient. A nurse was able to get some small gauge IV in the dorsal pedalis vein that I wasn't very confident in. 
as soon as I had seen that, my colleague actually had an IO and was placing an IO in the one area that wasn't burned on his right humerus because he was on the right side of the bed for the double setup. So we had IV access and we decided to move forward with a ketamine-assisted awake intubation, knowing that there was probably going to be some airway edema and a difficult airway ahead, and we didn't want to have that race against apnea with all of that extra pressure. So we decided to keep him awake and, and try to take at least a look with uh, ketamine assisted. So we gave him ketamine. I started with a small bolus and his heart rate came down. His arms came down and, and his moaning sort of stopped, but he was still breathing and satting 100%. I was really happy to provide him with some analgesia and then also happy that we were probably gonna be able to have at least a good look with loading some more ketamine. We eventually gave a milligram per kilogram of ketamine, and I took a look with a video laryngoscope, and it was erythematous, edematous, there were secretions, there was charred areas inside of his mouth. I couldn't see anything really. So I took the laryngoscope out and I put in a direct blade, and I was able to see what looked like a really friable, red, swollen, angry, unhappy epiglottis. At that point, early in my career, this was terrifying for me. And I was describing all of this out loud to my colleague who was at the bedside. And we had discussed this type of situation. When we prepared the room, we turned the gurney enough so that it would be really easy for him and I to switch places. We didn't have wires, we didn't have supplies, we didn't have anything between us. And at this point, we decided to have him being the much more experienced provider go in and, and take a look as well. So we switched spots. And he took a look with direct and saw the same exam as me. With the confidence of experience, he, he passed the bougie and pretty blindly, he, he got hang up sign and was able to pass an endotracheal tube. During this time I had been preparing and I actually had the scalpel ready on his neck on the part that my partner had already pre-marked just in case that one attempt that he was gonna do was unsuccessful. So at this point we had a secure airway, which was wonderful. My colleague had been there all day. I thanked him and, and had him go home after a high five and moved on to the, the next set of tasks that was going to confront me for this patient. So the ultrasound machine that had been broken was now thankfully fixed. So Ben confirmed tube placement based on his finding of lung slidings bilaterally. There was no CAT scan, though, so he couldn't check for additional trauma. But he did a quick and fairly thorough fast exam, which turned out to be negative. The patient's heart was hyperdynamic. He had pretty good cardiac output. And Ben wanted to monitor the patient's hemodynamics by maybe putting in a central line, but because of the injuries to his neck, he couldn't do an IJ or a subclavian. So he used the ultrasound to place a triple lumen venous cath in the patient's femoral artery. The patient's blood pressure looked great, and so Ben was able to push propofol and fentanyl to further treat the patient's pain. By now, a lot of the nurses had left. We had our core staff there, and I started to get on the phone to our burn center. Of course, this being the rural medicine talks, the burn center was full and couldn't accept the patient. So I had to call around to other tertiary centers to try to find a critical care burn unit. Eventually, I did find one in the nearest urban center, and it took a little while, but I got the burn intensivist on the phone, and he was just absolutely wonderful. I described the case. He accepted the case, but unfortunately, there was a huge windstorm in Southern California so the helicopter wouldn't be able to arrive for several hours. 
So this was now turning into an acute care case, acute critical care case into a sort of regular critical care case, following up on all of the complications that could potentially come from this was going to be my job for the next several hours. Now, of course, when you have a patient this demanding, this time intensive, it's easy to forget what else is happening on your shift. Once Benjamin had stabilized the patient, he was finally able to take a step back and look at the rest of the ER. Which was totally full. Every bed was full. Our waiting room was flowing outdoors. So I was going to have a lot to do for the evening. I started seeing other patients in between reevaluating this patient. So it was maybe every five or 10 minutes, I'd come back around, make sure he was doing okay on the vent, make sure his sedation was okay, reevaluating the labs. I kept on repeating the FAST exam just to make sure that something wasn't developing in the meantime. At some point, I became concerned that I wasn't feeling his radial pulses as well as I had before. My concern then was that he was developing compartment syndrome from those circumferential burns. I had never done an eschorotomy, so I called the burn intensivist, and he was wonderful, sort of talked me through it, referred me to a Google image to help me know the areas that were safe to make incisions. Our bovies were those battery-powered, sort of cheap ones, so I went through probably four or five of those to make these incisions, and the compartments felt much better after doing that. He didn't have any circumferential chest burns or neck burns, and he was doing well in terms of respiratory in terms of his vent status. So I didn't need to do a whole eschorotomy, but doing it to the extremities was kind of enough for me to do. Eventually, the helicopter crew came and transported the patient to the tertiary unit. I followed up on how he did, and, and unfortunately, he went into multi-organ failure and ended up being placed on palliative care. No family was ever able to be located. And as best as I understand, he was a homeless man who was sleeping on a bench and Someone came by and poured lighter fluid on him and, and set him on fire. And it was, it was just a horrible story. After the patient left, I had a sort of huddle with all of our team that was still there. And we talked it through and answered questions about management that some of the nurses had and the respiratory therapist and really thanked everybody because it was a really great team effort and it was it was a really hard case for people to, to see, I think. That sounds like a very harrowing experience medically um, in terms of all the different things that you had to consider and take care of, but also on a personal level. I mean, that's a really horrible story and so upsetting to think about what happened to this poor gentleman. But it sounds like he got the best care he possibly could have. And the fact that he made it even to the transfer is incredible. And so kudos to you and your team. There are a few things that I think are really good to point out here, just listening and reflecting back on what you said. The first one being how at the beginning, before the patient rolled in, with all the hubbub that was going on in the room and all the roles being assigned, you and your fellow staff tried to calm the room down. It's only going to get more chaotic. And so if you start at a point of high chaos, it's only going to get worse once the patient arrives. So if you can get everyone calmed down, everyone quiet, and hopefully listening to the first responders or paramedics or EMTs, whoever you have, and hear their story, because they're probably not going to stick around for a long time. Sometimes they're able to, and they're able to help, and, but sometimes they have to leave. So be quiet when they roll in so that everyone can hear the story, so everyone's on the same page. And this isn't to say that everyone is calm inside. Inside, everyone's freaking the heck out. 
but we have to just go through the steps and go back to our algorithms. And that's why they make the algorithms, right? So that we can fall back on them when we're in a chaotic state of mind. Another thing that I think is really great that you addressed right up front when he came in almost immediately was giving him some ketamine. It's so easy to focus on, you know, obviously the important things like the airway and the circulation, but burns obviously are incredibly painful. So imagine what that poor gentleman felt like and the fact that you were able to have the presence of mind to give him, you know, an, an analgesic dose of ketamine to start with before you started getting into the intubation setup is really key because the least we can do in someone who has essentially a critical, probably fatal injury is to take into consideration their pain levels. How many hours did you end up being with this patient in your department? Yeah, I went back and actually reviewed the notes in the timeline. I was with him for five and a half hours from when he came in until when he left. You painted a really clear picture of that feeling of when things start to be stable and you know, you're coming out of doing all the different procedures and you don't realize how much time has passed necessarily. You're so wrapped up in it. And then you take a step back and you see, okay, this person's going to be okay. And then you get that bigger picture of what the rest of your emergency department looks like. And you're like, oh, things have really gone kind of chaotic while I've been in here, which makes sense because everyone's in that room. Everyone's taking care of this one patient. And the need to sort of mentally compartmentalize and say, okay, I've got this critical patient in the crash room. Obviously, I'm going to be reassessing them, you know, whether it's between every patient or between every other patient. You know, coming back, repeating the exam, repeating your assessments, checking in with the nurses, checking in with the RT if you have one, even though while you're still continuing to take care of the other patients in your department. And that can be really hard to do, particularly when you're at the beginning of, uh, of your career, I find. You know, it's, you get in there and there's someone critically ill and your mind says, okay, I've got to be with this person forever. But once they're stable and, you know, you're waiting for disposition, you still need to take care of those other patients, which can be really hard to do. You said near the beginning that you and your fellow staff felt that this was going to be an urgent airway, but not necessarily a crash, like emergent airway. Did you have a sense of how long it had been since this gentleman had been found? Or what gave you that feeling that maybe you had a bit of time to get this airway secured? I mean, his sats were good, obviously, with the mask, but was there any other factor? Did you get some story on history that helped you just take a breather in that sense? There was very limited history. The reason that we had approached it as urgent and not emergent is that he was still breathing, he was moaning, he was moving, he wasn't going to arrest within the next several seconds. So we had minutes probably. So we were able to take those minutes and use them to optimize our first pass success rather than being panicked and having that cognitive load that there is an emergent need to do something right now. We were able to reframe that as there's an urgent need and we have time to optimize our first pass. And I think that really highlights the way that your brain clearly works as an emergency physician, because I think for a lot of people, they would say, okay, an emergent airway has to be done, you know, now, and now could take several minutes, but urgent airway would be, you know, 20 to 30 minutes in some people's mind. But the timeline in emergency medicine is much shorter. So emergent airways for us is okay, you put the LMA in now while you're getting the, you know, the direct laryngoscopy or the Craig set up. Whereas urgent is, you know, I have time to grab a few more of my toys and to get the RT there. So we've got minutes as opposed to seconds. Depending where you're working in the hospital, definitions of emergent and urgent will vary. Even one level above that, it's the, the cognitive reframing where the, the word emergency just like it kind of gives me a little jolt of adrenaline, whereas urgency, I'm kind of a little bit more chilled out and able to 
have a more of a mind space and less of a cognitive burden of, of the task. I was talking to some colleagues the other day and we were talking about a patient who we were beginning to worry that they might need a surgical airway at some point, you know, if this didn't go well, if the plane didn't arrive, which is, of course, in rural areas is always a consideration. And they were nowhere near needing this, but we were just talking through what might happen, you know, in a few hours if this happens. And had someone had said, oh, well, then we might be doing a crash crike. And I'm like, let's try and get away from the term crash crike. Crike is already <laughs> scary enough. Like, yeah. and using the words, you know, crash implies chaos in some way. Whereas if you say, you know, like emergent crike or just crike, because by definition, basically in an emergency room, a crike is going to be pretty damn urgent. I think a lot of the way that we frame things and if we're able to be calm and show that it isn't stressing us out, at least on the outside, that's going to help cool everybody down in the room and uh, make it seem a little less stressful. One other thing that I had thought about was in terms of having the most experienced person in the room do that task that's going to be super critical. So at that point in my career, I wasn't confident to be able to take that airway. And I was had a sort of a situational awareness enough to be able to let my colleague do it, knowing that he was way more experienced and would have a much higher likelihood of success for that. It's really hard because we want to get more experience. And we always say, well, how are we going to get more experience if we're always letting the most experienced person do it? But there's going to be a time when that colleague it doesn't happen to be there because, you know, it wasn't signed out. You're going to get your chance. There's going to be times when you're going to be alone and be thinking, oh, God, I wish I had a more experienced provider with me. So if there is a more experienced provider or someone who's had experience with this type of injury, then you hand it over. And that was another point I actually wanted to mention and really highlighted. I loved the way that you and your colleague decided ahead of time that you would both be accessible to the head of the bed and that you removed any obstacles. This has happened to me so many times where there are two providers in the room. One is at the head of the bed and the other one's maybe at the side, you know, on the right side at the chest or doing an ultrasound. And you want the other person to have a look. And there are wires and there are tubes and there are suction cables and there are chest tube drains. And there's every possible obstacle in your way. And it actually creates a mental obstacle to asking for help because you think, how am I even going to get this person around here? And, you know, accidents happen, chest tubes get pulled out, suction gets pulled out, oxygen gets disconnected from the wall. So creating the sense at the beginning that we might need two people to have a look at this and facilitating that is a fantastic, fantastic pearl. And I'm going to do that next time I'm in this situation, which I hope I'm never in because it sounds absolutely awful. <laughs> yeah, there was that MRAP segment uh, a month or two ago about optimizing the space for patient care and physicians. And I thought that was just wonderful because they're not really set up for, for this sort of thing. So I think taking the time to think about the patient and the needs and the sort of spatial awareness that you'll need and, and setting yourself up for success, I think that's, that's a great point to bring up. Well, thank you so much for sharing the story and for the work that you do. And I hope we'll hear another story from you sometime. Thank you so much. Time again for uh, the, 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 the critical camera mailbag. Hey, hey, Sky, it's good that we only have you on for one thing and you don't actually have to remember what we're talking about. That's true because I'm actually always a devil, <laughs> so I don't even have to remember whether it's devil's advocate or not. Wait, is this the devil's advocate? All right, well, Scott, we had a email from a listener about the diastolic shock index, but before we get to that, I want to start with the standard shock index, which we kind of talk about here and there, but let's get some stuff all straightened out here. 
Shock index is the heart rate over the systolic blood pressure, normal range somewhere between 0.5 and 0.7. What does it mean if I calculate my shock index and it's greater than 0.7? Well, you know, we used to be able to just call this the shock index like you did, and these people are pissing me off because they're taking a perfectly good term, and now we have to specify that's the systolic <laughs> shock index. You could obviously now intuit I'm not a big fan of this a new addition to the vernacular. But what we used to call the shock index is now the systolic shock index. And that was a, a marker that was really helpful if you weren't thinking through what's going on with your patient, because sometimes they'd have what looks like a semi-normal systolic blood pressure that would be compensated for by a high heart rate. We know up until a certain limit, the higher your heart rate, the more your cardiac output. And therefore, you could have a metastable blood pressure. Let's say you have a systolic of 95, but your heart rate's 140. That's a super sick patient. And we know that in a, very, a variety of conditions, sepsis, trauma. Now they just looked at his PE. This, this index is a really good measure of what's going on with a pulmonary embolism patient who might have what looks like a relatively normal MAP and systolic blood pressure saying, ah, they're not that sick. They're not going to have to go down a thrombolytic or interventional route. Well, if their heart rate's 150 and their systolic's 100, that's a very scary patient. So what it's a measure of is the metastable patient, the patient who's not horrible hypotension is being hidden by a compensatory tachycardia. And I guess the real question is, how do you use this in practice? So if you have a trauma patient who rolls in and their systolic shock index is 1.1, are you saying, oh, that's my trigger, I'm starting massive transfusion? Or if you have a pneumonia patient and the shock index is 1.2, are you saying, oh, I got to start norepinephrine on this patient? No, definitely not in either of those cases. It's, it's an additional piece of information that you may be missing a patient that's currently compensated and may crap out later on. I put it very much akin to a lower than expected end tidal CO2. They're both markers of a patient who, while the you know, red flag vital sign, which is blood pressure, is not yet at the level where we have all of our cognitive dispositions to act. It's a sign that they may progress to that. So no, I wouldn't start massive transfusion on that patient, but I'd probably look at them with more alacrity and check in more often to see what the hell's going on. I might even you know, have a stat pack, which at our center you know, just gets us a couple of units of blood in a cooler that you don't have to use. You could send back there, but I certainly wouldn't transfuse them yet until they're actually hypotensive. You know, for that septic patient, until their MAP hits 65, I'm not going to give vasopressors, but it's telling me something. And in that PE patient, if you were going to blow them off, just put them on a regular bed, maybe, you know, get a real echo by someone who knows what they're doing, which could be an EM, a critical care person. It could be the cardiologist. It doesn't matter who, as long as they have a real skill level at predicting whether there's signs of right-sided heart failure. We recently discussed pulse pressure with Chris Hicks. And this was in reference to an article that Kenji Inaba had published. And Chris's conclusion was very similar with pulse pressure is that if the pulse pressure is narrow, it's not telling him, oh, I, I got to start massive transfusion or I got to crack this person's chest if they have a GSW. What it's telling him is I'm just going to pay a little bit more attention to every little detail that comes from this patient as they are developing. It sounds like you're using the shock index very similarly. It might heighten your awareness, but it's not necessarily a trigger to initiate any specific management. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up that piece because it was so well done. And it does lead into the next thing we're going to talk about, which is what these systolic, diastolic, and pulse pressure values actually mean. And so, you know, and this is rough because, you know, your body does weird things to compensate for other things. But in general, your systolic is a representation of your cardiac output and your diastolic is a representation of your vascular tone. And the pulse pressure, as it narrows in the 
Chris Hicks piece discussing Kenji's article really points to a patient whose cardiac output is going down due to hypovolemia due to hemorrhagic shock. That's why that's predictive is as you have less and less cardiac filling, you're going to have less ability to have output. So your diastolic is going to move closer to your systolic. And there might be some endogenous catechol tone as well moving that diastolic up. You and Chris discussed this beautifully. We're going to kind of be talking about the opposite situation right now for the diastolic shock index. Perfect bridge into the listener question from Blake. The question from Blake. Recently at the Critical Care Symposium run by Amal Matu, the diastolic shock index, heart rate over diastolic blood pressure, was discussed in the context of septic shock. The perspective laid out was that a diastolic shock index greater than two and a half should be a trigger to start norepinephrine. Can you talk about this in the critical care mailbag? Scott, that's exactly what we're going to do. Again, the shock index, the systolic shock index has been around for a while. You just told me that when the shock index is high in a patient with infection, that's not telling you that I am going to now initiate X treatment. Does the diastolic shock index give us different data that says, you know what, that person's pretty sick. Maybe you should be reaching for that norepinephrine now. Yeah, you know, your, your statement you just made really encompasses how I think about this, which is what a diastolic shock index will tell you is you have a sick patient, but it doesn't tell you what to do with it. And that's really where I, I diverge from the faculty member that the listener question evoked. And it's because the map goal is pretty clear to me. Now, the diastolic shock index may be interesting. I find it less interesting than I do for the systolic shock index. Uh, you know, a, a patient will compensate for their vasodilatory state with increased cardiac output attempts by tachycardia. That's what your own endogenous epinephrine is trying to do. But it really doesn't give me any information that I'm all that jazzed up about, Swami. Now, if you are a person who's not understanding that borderline low blood pressures that haven't hit a map of 65 is already bad in septic shock, and those patients probably shouldn't go to a floor, and they're probably just being hit in a snapshot of time of that metastable blood pressure, by which I mean the way septic shock presents is this roller coaster ride of blood pressures. And what happens is they might be, you pop in the room, they have a map of 75 and you're like, all's well in the world. And then, you know, the nurse calls you and they're like, this patient was hypotensive. And so you go back in the room and you, you check it and you're like, what the hell are you talking about? The map's 80. Why, why'd you bother me? And you're a jerk because the nurse was absolutely right. The patient was hypotensive. And what happens is they start slipping down, they start getting vasodilated, and then their own endogenous catechols kick in, their blood pressure spikes back up. And then, you know, later on, you know, half hour later, they drop back down again. And what could happen with these patients is this up and down cycle has a downwards trend. You know, that roller coaster keeps moving closer and closer to the ground. And if they eventually have a dip that's below like a map of 40, they could die and have sudden cardiac arrest. So when you see a patient with a blood pressure of 69 map, with septic shock, that's not a patient who goes to a floor. That's a patient you predict probably will be needing norepi at some point very, very shortly. Now, if you didn't already realize that, then diastolic shock index may help you because the reason that they are not at the map of 61 right now, even though they were 10 minutes ago, is they popped out their own endogenous epi and norepi. And that epi gave them tachycardia. And that tachycardia temporarily compensated along with the norepi squeezing their afterload, for that dip in blood pressure. So if you didn't already understand how to predict a septic patient's going down, that their trend is bad, then sure, maybe diastolic shock index will be a little helpful. But honestly, when you start seeing this cyclical up and down of blood pressure and it's hovering you know, in the 70s, and then it's hovering in the high 60s, 
you don't start the norepi at this point, but you bring it in the room and you know that that patient's pretty sick and they're probably not going to make it on the floor. All of these little data points are helpful in pushing us towards the right decision. And I'm sure you've had this happen before. You admit the patient with pneumonia, patients waiting for the floor bed because they were stable. And then somebody calls you because the pressure is a little bit low. And now the patient has a bed assigned to them and the pressure wasn't so low that you need to start norepinephrine on them. But that signal that you're seeing should be enough to push you to say, let's hold off on the bed transfer. Let's get a critical care consult. Maybe this patient should go to a higher level of care. That can be a hard trigger for some of us because now we've lost that bed that we've been fighting so hard for. This is just one more thing to kind of help push us towards making that right decision. Absolutely right. Totally. And, you know, there is emerging evidence that starting norepi, regardless of blood pressure, in a patient you've identified as sick, so maybe their lactate's quite high or they're having these dips in blood pressure, regardless of the MAP at a fixed, very low dose, a dose that's not going to affect the afterload, really not going to affect the blood pressure through squeezing your arterioles, um, but more to take your venous side and bring it down to a somewhat a more of a normal state so that whatever fluid you give actually gets back to the heart. That may be a future move. That also is not really a diastolic shock index type of thing, but that is something you may see emerging in the future. Scott, that wasn't quite enough for a full critical care mailbag, so we're going to add in. Oh, goody. <laughs> a little devil's advocate here because you emailed me after the March 2022 piece, which was a little pro-con between Jacob Avila and Justin Morgenstern about the utility of the fast exam. And you said, Swami, I got some thoughts. So um, I'm just going to let you riff here. I'm just going to let you go and say, what are your thoughts on this pro-con fast exam? Yeah. I mean, these two guys are my buddies, so hopefully they won't take offense at anything I said. <laughs> and while nothing they said was explicitly wrong, I think it's a completely misguided philosophy that most of emergency medicine has on the FAST exam in general. And it was evoked by both of those speakers, who again are brilliant and did not say a single thing that was incorrect. But Swami, the endpoint that they're using for their discussion of, oh, the FAST is specific but insensitive is the end point that the fast is somehow a magical exam that tells you what's going on inside the abdomen and whether there's abdominal injury. Did you get that sense from the piece? Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately that's what we want it to tell us. We want it to either tell us there is or there isn't. Absolutely. And, and that's where everyone goes wrong. And that's where their comments along the lines of you shouldn't do it on the uh, stable patient because when you get the negative, it's going to send you the wrong way. Yeah, well, that's true if you have that as your endpoint, but that's not the endpoint. And this is the complete misunderstanding of the abdominal views on the FAST exam. And if you just shift your viewpoint to the FAST exam's endpoint is a triple B, a bunch of blood in the belly, then all of a sudden everything crystallizes because all of a sudden you realize that a positive fast is telling you there's a bunch of blood in the belly. Now, depending on how good you are and what views you're doing, that number will be somewhere between like 400, 800. I mean, if you're super good, you may even get down to 250. It doesn't matter. It means there's a couple of units of blood in the belly in most cases when you have a positive fast. When you have a negative fast, it does not tell you there's no intra-abdominal injury. It tells you there's not a bunch of blood in the belly. And all of a sudden, when you start looking at it through that lens, the fast becomes both sensitive and specific. And it makes complete sense that if you decided to do it on a relatively stable patient and had a negative, why it doesn't help you to decide whether or not to get a CT scan. 
because it doesn't tell you whether or not there's an abdominal injury. It just tells you if negative and done properly that there's not currently a bunch of blood in the belly. And when you make that your endpoint, the literature really crystallizes to very good values. So that's the first thing that I really want people to understand is the meaning of the FAST exam. When negative means there's not a couple liters of blood in there, and when it's positive, it means there is. The next real problem with the FAST exam in emergency medicine is that people, for whatever reason, have taken it into their head that it's a dichotomous reporting when you are discussing this exam, when you're discussing it with the surgeons who are there, when you're discussing it with your attending, when you're discussing it with your colleagues, is FAST is negative or positive. That is not how a radiologist would interpret a FAST exam. And we know this based on their favorite flora. What is the favorite flora of a radiologist, Swami? Uh, correlate clinically. The hedge. Hedge <laughs> 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 the flora. But yes, you've, you've got into your true intent. And you really need to get into that mindset. So if you would stake your life that it is really fluid in the belly, then you say it's positive. I have a positive FAST. And if you have looked at all of the spaces, that you need to for each of the views, you know, that would mean actually seeing the tip of the liver in Morrison's. It would mean looking both subdiaphragmatic and perisplenic in the left upper quadrant view. It would mean not looking at all in the bladder because it's a garbage view. And you could see all those views, then you could say the fast is negative. Anything else, there's shadowing, I'm not sure, is that fluid or is it just perinephric fat? What you say is indeterminate. And then all of a sudden, again, this exam gains a lot of validity because when you know it, a true positive, and you know a true negative, and then there's this real inclination I find in emergency medicine to say, oh, is that something? I'll just say it's positive. But that changes the course of everyone's thinking in the room. And then when the CT is completely clean, they think that you are incapable of the exam. But really, in your heart, you knew that did not look truly like a positive. It just looked like something a little bit weird. Don't say that's positive. Just say indeterminate. Now, this is where I'm going to diverge a little from the evidence, Swami, but I really believe it's true, and there is a little bit of literature to support me, but I think it's really stupid that we're still doing the abdominal views as they stand in the standard fast exam, because it's a waste of time, and both of the speakers alluded to this. We should just be doing Morrison's in Trendelenburg. Now, we have one article in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine showing this increases sensitivity. My experience is I have never found fluid in the other views that I have not found in Morrison's at the liver tip in Trendelenburg, markedly increases the sensitivity. Now, the exam becomes over-specific at that point for the triple B. All of a sudden, instead of 250, you could diagnose like 50 mLs of fluid in there, and that doesn't have the same clinical meaning because we know some uh, patient groups have physiologic fluid there. So if I have a positive on that Trendelenburg-Morrison's, then I will just pop them into flat, which is where all the fast exam validation comes from. And if that fluid disappears, which will do you know, it, within a few seconds, then I can know that there might be a tiny amount of fluid in the belly, but there's not enough to qualify for that triple B. And then I'll say exactly that. I won't say it's a positive fast exam. I'll say, it looks like there's a small amount of fluid in the belly. I think we need a CT scan to figure out exactly what. And again, now I look like a million bucks. Someone should do a big study validating this, but I think the spleen and renal and the bladder views are completely stupid, a complete waste of time. And they take so long that again, the fast exam is no longer fast. I'll agree with you on that last point for sure, because I think the splenorenal is the one that takes the most time, the, the most time is wasted in that area, whereas Morrison's patch, I think we're quite good at. And I also like that you said, you got to get the tip of the liver. I find that this is one of the things that people miss over and over again, is that when they're getting a Morrison's pouch and saying it's negative, they have to scan all the way down to the tip because that's where the fluid goes first. 
And if you're not getting that piece of the information, you haven't really done a Morrison's pouch. I love this approach because again, it is supposed to be fast and you want to get it done as quickly as possible. And the splenal renal really can take quite a bit of time, especially if you're also going above the spleen to look between the spleen and the diaphragm, which we really should be if we're looking for a true negative fast exam. When you do that, Trendelenburg, do you also, if you can, roll the patient a little bit to the right side? Does that change anything? I don't think you need to roll. The Morrison's is built to be the collecting place for fluid while the patient's supine. That's why we do it. So you know, you don't need to roll. And look, if you're in a place that doesn't have ready access to x-ray at the bedside for your trauma patients that has the digital PAC system, you can look at the screen, then I think the views for pneumothorax and hemothorax are incredibly important. There's never been a situation where my x-ray techs on real traumas have not been there immediately. And therefore, I think those views are useless to me. And again, you could argue back and forth the sensitivity of pneumothorax on ultrasound being better than x-ray, and they're absolutely right, except that's not, again, the question you should be asking. The question is, is this patient's hemodynamic instability caused by one side of the chest? And that means tension pneumothorax. So I don't care that the ultrasound is more sensitive for pneumothorax. If I have the digital packs there, I don't bother with those views. And again, the FAST exam becomes FAST. Then what is the value of the FAST exam? They poo-pooed it for not sick patients. And they're right. Especially, you know, if you have a patient who's about to go to CT and you're delaying to get a FAST exam, that's a waste. But the real value of FAST in a non-sick patient is twofold. One, you got to learn to do this exam really well. You have to be a true expert at this exam. So I think it is valuable to practice it whenever possible, as long as you know what a negative actually means. The other reason is sometimes there'll be patients with trauma that we're sending home and we're decided not to CT them. And in those cases, a positive can completely change our plan. So there is value to non-sick fast exams, but it shouldn't delay care. Now let's talk about the value in sick patients. Now there was a mention in these patients that if you're going to CT anyway, why bother doing it? And there, there, I disagree with that. There is a value to this because If I've decided to take a patient to CT and I do see fluid in the peritoneal cavity, I probably will still go to CT if the patient is stable or metastable. But if all of a sudden they decompensate in CT scan, that really changes my viewpoint if they have not had the abdominal views of that CT done yet. Like if they're getting their head done and all of a sudden their BP drops and I know they have intra-abdominal fluid, that means something. Now, some of the other situations where it's key is penetrating trauma. It's game-changing. First of all, it's really important to identify pericardial effusion early on. That could be missed, and a lot of the surgeons will avoid doing a pericardial window for, you know, these bullets or stab wounds that they don't think are in the box. The box is really ill-defined at this point. It's really nice to figure out if there's fluid around the heart. The other thing it really helps with is figuring out which compartment to open first, and that's less of your problem, but being able to give that information to your surgeon is absolutely key. Now, they were mentioning on blunt, the pelvic trauma, yes, game-changing, absolutely key. But I think it's important even in a patient without pelvic trauma in blunt because of the need to identify compartments of bleeding. And, you know, so you, the way a trauma expert approaches any, any form of hemorrhagic shock, but especially blunt, is figure out which compartment they're bleeding from. And there's five of them, right? There's two thoracic cavities. That's one. There's peritoneal there's retroperitoneal, there's a femur, and then there's the street. And the thing is that if you have a free fluid positive fast exam, then that's one compartment that could be bleeding. That's an incredibly important piece of information to know regardless of where you're going. And it does bring up one, I think, slight misstatement 
by Jacob. And it was said in passing, and I don't even think he really meant it. But he said, like, if your fast is negative on a sick blunt trauma patient, then you maybe don't give blood because it's probably another source like neurogenic shock or medical causes of hypotension. But even if you've taken the chest out, even if the femur looks fine, even if you have no external source of bleeding and your fast exam is negative on the abdominal views, we really have no ability to assess the retroperitoneum in the actual trauma bay. And you should always assume, always assume it's hemorrhagic shock until proven not. And that means continuing to give blood products unless you are absolutely sure that this is not hemorrhagic shock. Because missing a retroperitoneal bleed, whether it be the beans or big red and big blue, really does not go well. And a, a pelvic trauma that's not recognized, you know, you say, oh, they're not pelvic trauma. Turns out they were. That also doesn't go well if you get behind on your transfusion. So the fast exam, unfortunately, is not a marker of not needing blood. Summary. I love this. So really a lot of nuances with the fast exam. I like the idea that maybe we can actually focus on less windows, but do those windows extremely well. So focus on the heart, focus on Morrison's pouch in that Trendelenburg position to increase the sensitivity of that test and not necessarily throwing the fast away in the stable patient or the pseudo-stable patient, but understanding where it can really be beneficial. And honestly, Scott, what you've done is changed the question that we're asking. Is there a ton of blood in the belly or not, as opposed to is there a specific intra-abdominal injury? I think it's going to be important for people to go back, listen to that pro-con, listen to this again, bring this all together into your practice. And then Scott, when we go back to that shock index piece, I think what I really take away from this is that these values are useful, especially the systolic shock index, but really what they do isn't tell you that because the shock index is positive, I need to do X, Y, or Z treatment, but rather that patient may be slightly sicker than I'm giving them credit for. And maybe I need to do a little bit more general resuscitation. I need to look a little bit closer at what could be going on, or I really need to be thinking about where I'm putting this patient in the hospital so that they continue to have that attention that they need in case they decompensate, not putting too much stock into these. And I think that the listeners got the sense that you're not really grabbing onto that diastolic shock index right now, but the systolic shock index clearly still does play a little bit of a role in helping our decision process. That is perfect. And I'm not at all biased by the fact that they stole the acronym of what we invented, delayed sequence intubation. That has <laughs> nothing to do with my DSI. animosity. That's exactly what's going to happen, Scott. We don't need any more three-letter acronyms, and we definitely don't need repeat three-letter acronyms. Scott, thanks so much for taking us through all of this. Oh, so much fun, Spunny. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Cardiology Corner. Hey everyone, my name is Britt Guest, and I am joined today with Dr. Amal Matu. And today we're gonna to talk about diagnosing occlusive MIs in patients with left bundle branch blocks and pace rhythms. Amal, I wanna start out just by talking about kind of the history of Scarbosa. My name is Captain Barbosa. No, that's Scarbosa, not Barbosa. Come on now. You know, in, I think it was 1996, Dr. Elena Scarbosa first described this Scarbosa criteria that was used to help identify patients with occlusive MIs in left bundle branch blocks. What did they do before 1996? How were we supposed to diagnose these STEMIs in left bundle branch block patients? Well, that's a good question. And to be completely honest with you, I'm not exactly sure. 96 just happens to be when I finished residency. And so this was published just at the end of my residency. And what we had been taught before this came out 
was that if you had a patient coming in with chest pain or concerning anginal type of symptoms, and they had presumably a new left bundle branch block pattern, then you would presume that that patient has an acute coronary occlusion. So I think what most people were doing before these criteria came out, and even after, to be honest, was that if somebody had a new left bundle or presumed new left bundle with concerning symptoms, then they just go went ahead and treated it as an acute coronary occlusion. And now, you know, in my training, I remember thinking, you know, originally when I was probably an intern, that new left bundle branch block was really concerning. And now we don't really get as excited about that as we used to. Yeah, that's true. And actually, the cardiologists kind of caught on to that even earlier. It was interesting that in all of our textbooks and our board review books, and even in the national guidelines for quite a few years, even after the Scarbosa criteria came out, we would see a patient who had chest pain and would have a left bundle branch block pattern on the EKG. We would get an old EKG from several months ago, six months ago, a year ago, and we'd say, oh my gosh, this is a, a new left bundle. And we call cardiology and we say, hey, we've got a patient with a chest pain or other set of symptoms, and they've got what we presume is a new left bundle. And cardiology would just kind of yawn and say, oh, okay, we'll go ahead and give them nitro and aspirin and then I'll see you in the morning. And they would do fine. And one time I actually met with the head of our clinical cardiology group. And I said, we're very frustrated. I don't understand why you guys aren't taking these patients to the cath lab. It's in your guidelines. New left bundle plus chest pain is a STEMI equivalent. And he honestly, he looked at me and he said, oh yeah, we don't read those guidelines. <laughs> <laughs> This is your literature. What do you mean you're not reading the guidelines? And, you know, he was very nice about it. And he said, look, for a number of years now, we've known that when we take these patients to the cath lab with a presumed new left bundle, they always turn out to be negative. And he said the only time they turn out to be positive is if the patients are really sick. Mm -hmm. In other words, if a patient has an acute MI that induces a new left bundle branch block pattern, that's a really big MI. And those patients are going to look really sick. They're not going to be just chilling, asking for a turkey sandwich and, oh yeah, my pain's 10 out of 10 and happen to have a left bundle. Those are not new left bundles. And so that's something that the cardiology community seemed to know already, even before they changed the guidelines. And they ended up finally doing some big studies. And in 2013, they finally changed at least the US guidelines and said, you know what? New left bundle does not automatically equate to an acute coronary occlusion or STEM equivalent. And there, you need to have a little bit more than that. They either need to be acutely unstable or, well, you ought to start looking for these uh, criteria that we're going to be talking about. So speaking of that criteria, we've got Scarbosa. Hi. Now we have Scarbosa's original criteria, and now we have a modified criteria. Let's talk really quick just about that original Scarbosa criteria. What are the three things that we need to be looking for? In the original criteria, what Scarbosa identified, as you mentioned, there, there's three criteria. The first two turned out to be really, really good, really specific. The third one we'll mention, but it turned out to be not quite so good. So in the original criteria, what she said was that in any lead, when you have at least a millimeter of concordant ST elevation, you're done. That is enormously predictive of an acute coronary occlusion. Go ahead and cast them or give them lytics. What does that mean? That means when the QRS primarily points up and there's ST elevation in the same direction, in other words, concordant ST elevation of at least a millimeter in any lead, then that equates to 
uh, pretty much equates to an acute coronary occlusion. That I always refer to as Scarbosa A. Okay. Scarbosa B, the second Scarbosa criteria, she said in V1, V2, or V3. So just in those three leads, in V1, V2, or V3, if you have concordant depression of at least one millimeter, then call it a STEMI equivalent. Now in V1, V2, V3, recall in a left bundle, normally in a left bundle, V1, V2, V3, the QRS primarily points down. And so if you have ST depression in the same direction, in other words, concordant ST depression of at least a millimeter, you're done. That is enormously specific for an acute coronary occlusion. So Scarbosa A and Scarbosa B were really good. You could take those to the bank. Scarbosa C, the third criteria she came up with was, you know, she said, it's normal when the QRS complex goes down, there should be a little bit of elevation. There should be a little bit of discordant ST segment elevation. But if there's more than five millimeters of discordant elevation, in other words, QRS complex goes down and the ST is elevated, but more than five millimeters, then that's too much. That's excessive discordant elevation. And if you see excessive discordant elevation of more than five millimeters, then you need to be worried about that. Well, subsequent studies came out and showed that that third Scarbos criteria of excessive discordant elevation of more than five millimeters wasn't all that specific. So for quite a few years, we, we kind of put that off in the corner and didn't pay that much attention to it. Yeah, you worry a little bit, but not enough that you're going to activate the cath lab or give lytic. So that was the original set of Scarbosa criteria. For a long time, Scarbosa criteria was all we had to take those patients with left bundle branch block and determine if they had an acute STEMI or not. But we often got stuck with that third piece, the one that Amal alluded to doesn't perform as well. And it was hard because we'd often see that and only that and not know exactly which way to go. But then along came Steve Smith and the modified Scarbosa criteria, which give us a lot more power in making this diagnosis in the patient with the left bundle branch block. So Steve Smith and some of his colleagues up at uh, Hennepin, Steve Smith is and one of the EKG gurus that's out there, and he, he does a lot of great EKG research. He studied this with his colleagues, and they validated this concept also. And essentially what they found is that, well, that, that Scarbosa C is not totally useless. But maybe instead of using five millimeters as an absolute cutoff, we should use relative amount of excessive discordance. So in other words, if you have a little QRS complex and there's five millimeters of elevation in the opposite direction, that's really significant. But if you have a ginormous QRS complex, five millimeters of elevation may not be all that much compared to the size of that ginormous QRS. So that kind of makes sense. So what they did was they studied a handful of different numbers. And what they found is that when the QRS complex goes down, if there's ST elevation, that's normal. But if the ST elevation is so much that the elevation is 25% or more of the size of the S wave, then that would be considered positive. So that's what we now consider excessive discordant elevation. When the ST elevation is at least 25% of the size of the S wave. And as I mentioned, they validated that and they found that that criteria was really, really sensitive and really, 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 really specific. Four reallys. It was really, 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 really specific. Really. All right, Amal, let me see if I have this right. 
So you need concordant ST elevation in one or more lead, and it can be any lead. And then you need concordant ST depression in V1 through V3, and it can be any one of those three leads. And in terms of that excessive discordant ST elevation, that needs to be one or more lead anywhere, and that ST elevation needs to be more than 25% of the preceding S wave. That's exactly right. And the, the other thing that I'll emphasize, which you said already, any of these three criteria only have to show up in one lead. That's how good they are. You don't need two adjacent leads. You just need a single lead. That's how good it is. We've got left bundle branch blocks. We've got Scarbosa criteria. We've got modified criteria. And that is really great. But now I have a patient, say I have a 75-year-old, and they're coming in with chest pain. They have risk factors. But they're paced. They are in a paced rhythm. Now, when I think about a paced rhythm, I think, okay, I've got essentially a pacer lead in the right ventricle, and I'm almost basically mechanically inducing a left bundle branch block. Now, in this person who has a concerning story, maybe they don't look awesome, can I apply the Scarbosa criteria to a paced rhythm and diagnose an occlusive MI? That's a really great question. And the first thing we want to point out is that everything that we're about to talk about only applies to right ventricular pacers because they will induce that artificial left bundle type of pattern. If you have a left-sided pacer or a biventricular pacer, this doesn't necessarily apply. But you know, fortunately, the vast majority of ventricular pacers are right ventricular, and they induce this left bundle type of pattern. So back in 1997, this is another thing that Scarbosa studied. The problem is that there's very, very few and very small studies that have looked at PACER patients that are having MIs. There just are not a lot of them. And so they, the criteria have really not been well accepted for many years. Anyway, the original Scarbosa criteria appeared to apply very nicely for PACERs also. In fact, Scarbosa A worked really nicely with the PACER. Scarbosa B worked really nicely with the, with the PACER. And actually, the original Scarbosa C turned out to work pretty well with pacers also. But again, these are all really small studies. Well, uh, Dodd and Smith and other colleagues of theirs came out with a really nice study back in uh, 2021, published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, the largest study that we have, the best well-done study that we have looking at acute coronary occlusion in paced rhythms. And what they found was that, yes... We can use some variation of the Scarbosa criteria to diagnose acute coronary occlusion in pace rhythms. And so shall we go through those? Yes. Scarbosa A. All right. So Scarbosa A. Everybody is down with Scarbosa A. No change. Scarbosa A works with pacers. Recapping again, if you have concordant ST elevation of at least a millimeter in any lead, you're done. Call it an acute coronary occlusion. Scarbosa B. Scarbosa B. Remember, Scarbosa B was in V1, V2, V3, which normally point down, QRS normally points down if there's ST depression or concordant ST depression in the same direction as that QRS of at least a millimeter, that was positive. The change here is that with paced rhythms, the QRS normally points down in V1, V2, V3, but also in V4, V5, V6. So when you take 
the Scarbosa B criteria, you don't have to limit it to V1, V2, V3. The Scarbosa B criteria applies to all of the precordial leads. So in other words, if you have ST depression of at least a millimeter in any one of V1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, you're done. That is an acute coronary occlusion. Scarbosa C. And then the modified Scarbosa C, remember what that was, in any lead where the QRS points down, if there's ST elevation in the opposite direction, but the ST elevation is at least 25% or more of the size of the S wave, that's too much elevation, and that would be considered positive also for acute coronary occlusion. This makes sense logically that, especially, you know, we have that right ventricular pacer lead, we induce a left bundle branch block, and now we can actually apply the Scarbosa criteria and have recent great literature to prove, you know what, that's pretty effective in diagnosing an occlusive MI. I want to thank you so much, Amal, for joining me for this interview. And I also want to make a shout out to Corpendium. We've got a new chapter written by the one and only Dr. Mel Herbert, and it's actually on EKG diagnosis of occlusive MI in patients with paced rhythms. It talks all about what Amal and I just discussed in this interview. So go check it out. Just add, most importantly, it has some very nice diagrams in there as well. And so everything that we've talked about, I think, really becomes a lot more clear when you look at the images that are in there. Awesome. Thanks, Amal. What we're really trying to focus on is that these patients, they need more care than just giving blood or blood components, the transfusion part. These are bleeding patients, and we're kind of focused in, in on the, the topic of trauma on these patients. They need a comprehensive care package. That is none other than Andrew Petrosoniak. Andrew Petrosoniak. Trauma team leader and emergency physician at St. Mike's in Toronto. And we're talking about the hemorrhaging patient, whether it be the GI bleed, the trauma patient, and this shift from massive transfusion protocol, which we have talked about ad nauseum, to massive hemorrhage protocol, not just a shift in terminology, but a shift in the way we think. And so we're trying to shift away from the use of transfusion where clinicians just, that's what they, they, they seem to think about. Okay, how do we give more blood? Rather, how do we care for a patient using damage control principles, making sure that they stay warm, making sure that they get to definitive hemostasis early? in addition to the transfusion of the, the particular blood and blood component therapies. So it's quite a holistic approach to taking care of the hemorrhaging patient. And that's really what we're trying to focus on. Traditionally, a massive transfusion is defined as kind of 10 units in, in 24 hours. But if we move away from that use of massive transfusion, there's a lot of patients that get six, seven, eight units in, in a, an hour or two who still need all of those same resources. And so that's one of the critical elements that we're trying to move forward with this change of, of terminology. And, you know, it's more than just giving blood. It's all of the other evidence-based interventions. Petra, we're going to talk about a trauma patient, but does this approach apply to the GI bleed, to the ruptured ectopic pregnancy, to the ruptured AAA? Is it, is it a basic similar approach to all of those presentations? Yeah, absolutely. Each one should be tailored so that, you know, much of the evidence for MHP and particularly the sort of the notion of a hemostatic resuscitation with a one-to-one-to-one -one -one or a two-to-one-to-one -one approach, that 
evidence all exists within the trauma sphere. There's very little that exists in the medical sphere. But the notion that patients should get definitive hemostasis, that they might have some coagulopathy, they do still need a full court press of, of a multidisciplinary team to take care of them. But there are definitely nuances, like whether, you know, I think we know now that probably patients with a, G, a massive GI bleed don't need TXA or don't benefit from that. So you do have to customize the MHP a little bit for the trauma patient and non-trauma patient. But beyond that, it is a, just a, an overall approach to bleeding patients that, that we can definitely move forward and do better with. Let's start with a patient I recently saw on shift. It was a 27-year-old man who was in a major MVC. When he gets to our emergency department, his BP is about 90 over 50. He's tachycardic. There are clearly multiple injuries going on. At that point, at first point of contact, are you activating your MHP or are you using some tools to help you make that decision? Or I guess, how would you go about deciding when to activate MHP on a patient like that? Yeah. So, I mean, that's the million dollar question in trauma resuscitation. What we're trying to balance is getting blood early to patients. And we know that that is beneficial to patient outcomes. You know, for every minute delay, it's been shown to even have a 5% increase in odds of death to getting blood to these patients. So we know it's really valuable. At the same time, we're balancing wastage and we don't want to overactivate. It's a lot of resources and all of that. Most of the research when looking at the scoring tools that many people are probably familiar with, particularly the ABC score, when those are evaluated and decided, like, are these good for helping me make a better decision about who needs MHP? The outcome of interest is who ultimately gets a massive transfusion, and that's defined as 10 units in 24 hours. That's often the definition that's used. And so for us in the emergency department, that outcome of interest is, is really not that helpful because we're less interested in what happens in 24 hours, but we're really interested in what happens in the first one, two, three, four, five, six hours and who might need a, a large amount of resources, but maybe they don't need 10 units of blood, but they might need all of the other things that come along with it. So that's the challenge with interpreting any of these scores, but you know they do help and they can be there to support in times of uncertainty, some of the decision-making. More recently, one of the scores that I've become quite interested in is the RABT score, maybe called the rabbit score. I don't know how they, they actually pronounce it, <laughs> but it is built off of the ABC score. And it instead, it uses a shock index as an element. It has a positive fast as an element, penetrating torso injury, and then finally pelvic fracture. And so if you have two or more of these, it has a pretty reasonable sensitivity and specificity, and it's found to be in the you know, around 80%, 90% range, and, and certainly has compared better than the ABC score or the shock index alone. So I think that's a, a useful score to be applied clinically. The nice thing about it is that you don't need any blood work back to make those calls. But one of the things I really like, and you and Scott did an episode on transfusion recently, this idea of a stat pack or this call to get uncross-matched products, blood um, pack cells, early. I think that's probably a bit more of a practical approach because often with using the scores, we don't have all the information in it, it before the patient arrives. Sometimes we feel like it's a little bit late and then we have to wait to get blood. So I will often call for two, three, or four units and we'll release anywhere from two to four units of uncrossed blood. And what that does is it buys me time. Because many of these patients, you give them a unit or two, and then they actually turn around 
And you actually don't need more. You don't need FFP. You don't need to activate the whole MHP. And so that I find is a much more practical approach that balances the clinical utility and and the potential for wastage. And what I build on from there is the critical administration threshold. And that's the idea of a patient that needs three or more units of PAC cells in one hour. And that's my new kind of favorite practical tactic for activating MHP. So I'll call for two units. That comes down very quickly. It's uncrossed. I start giving that. And then the minute that I realize I'm going to need more than that, then that's my trigger. And and I teach our residents about the importance of the number three during an MHP. And so at three units of blood for us, we teach ABC. So A is activate MHP if you haven't. B is begin to balance your ratios, and we'll talk more about that. And C, that's when I start to think about giving calcium and concentrate, particular fibrinogen concentrate. And so it's A, B, C at three. And that's kind of how I've decided to sort of implement in my practice a way that's somewhat evidence-based and balances the challenges of wastage and, and getting uh, the blood quickly to the patient. I like that approach, and I like the practicality of it because you're right. I think we feel like we need to get this right immediately when the patient hits the door, that immediately we have to determine, does this patient need an MHP, or if you're still using the old terminology, an MTP, or do they just need a unit or two? And then if I call for the massive transfusion, then I feel almost obligated to give it, or I'm worried about wasting it. So I think this approach kind of gets in the middle of, there are some patients or many patients where it's going to be hard to determine until you actually administer some blood of how much they're actually going to need. And that's okay. Let's recognize that. Let's accept that as the norm and then give that blood, reassess the patient, and then determine, do I need to keep going or not? Do I need to get those resources? I think one of the hard things with that is depending on where you work, it can be a longer amount of time or a shorter amount of time to actually get the blood that you need. And if you have that stat pack of a couple of units that you can get right away, I think that will probably help to empower us to not always jump right to that MHP. But one of the things in there, Petro, that you mentioned, and I think we need to come back to because we are talking trauma, is the tranexamic acid, because we don't have to wait to give that tranexamic acid. As soon as the patient hits the door, we can start that if we think it's indicated. Has your approach to giving TXA changed over the last couple of years? So I follow the CRASH-2 clinical criteria, and, and I get that you know certainly some criticisms and appropriate criticisms of the study, but it is you know the largest study we have. It's a randomized trial. And so the criteria of a a systolic less than 90 or a heart rate greater than 110 in a patient who I suspect bleeding, that's who I give tranexamic acid to. I'm very liberal. Definitely if I'm giving blood to a a trauma patient, they get TXA. And even those that don't get blood with those clinical parameters, I'll give it. And there's some recent data out of the STAMP trial that looked at and and some reanalysis of CRASH-2 that earlier TXA is actually better. And so I don't give it if it's greater than three hours from time of injury. And we've found that that, because it just doesn't have the benefit and there might be some harm there. And certainly with the survival benefit decreases by um, about 10% for every 15 minute delay. And so up to three hours, I really try and get it in within the first hour. And the STAMP trial found that even within the first hour, that's more beneficial than waiting an hour or two hours or three hours post-injury. So we try and give it upfront as early as possible. And the original CRASH-2 protocol was one gram initially, and then one gram over eight hours. And that eight hours is just painful. You lose a line, you have to run an infusion, 
And it just seems unnecessary. And and without a ton of data to back it, though we do know the safety works because we have run studies with two grams up front. We just give two grams up front over 20 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever your institutional uh, will allow. And it just makes it way easier because we were finding that patients were not getting their second gram because it was just so much of a logistical hassle. Aside from the tranexamic acid, is there anything else that I can do immediately when that patient hits the door while I'm waiting, even for those first couple of units of blood to arrive? Yeah, I mean, the one thing that we see happen all the time is that these patients do get cold, and even just a little bit cold is bad for patients. You know, a temperature of 34 degrees increases your risk of further transfusion by almost 20%. And so we really try and get these patients normothermic and keep them warm. Probably the most effective thing is a, is a forced air warmer, like a bear hugger or, or um, some type of forced air warmer and a warmed IV blood products. And then monitoring the patient's temperature is critical, and that should happen in the first few minutes, You know, whether it be an esophageal or a rectal temp, or even just a tympanic, if that's all you have initially if they're awake. And then keeping track of that temperature throughout the resuscitation really does have a, a positive impact on these patients. I find that that warmed blood products is really important. The level one infusers obviously give us that, but if you are going into that massive transfusion, that massive hemorrhage, protocol, you're giving lots of products. If they're not body temperature, it's going to have a huge impact. And, and for whatever reason, the trauma resuscitation bays are always the coldest rooms in the entire emergency department. Part of it is because they are close to the doors. They get that ambient temperature coming in from outside. But there's got to be some way that we can keep them just maybe slightly warmer than they are right now. That's got to help the patient a little bit. But I agree with you, getting the cold clothes off, the wet clothes off, getting those warm blankets, making sure you're warming your products as they're going in. And these are the first things that we're going to be doing for these patients. Now, obviously, we are recognizing the injuries, taking care of the injuries, but we've now given our tranexamic acid, whether we are doing that as the full two grams right up front, or we're doing the one gram plus the one gram over eight hours. We're trying to keep the patients warm. We've got that level one infuser heating up those products as they go in. And we know that we are shooting to do a one-to-one-to-one transfusion of RBCs to FFP to platelets. You and I both know that that is very challenging. Often we find, oh, I've already given four units of red cells. I haven't even started with FFP or platelets yet. Practically, how do you go about trying to balance those numbers? Yeah. So the first thing is, is what, what's the optimal ratio? And I think we do know we want to give some type of balanced or hemostatic resuscitation. That's been fairly clear from the literature. But the optimal ratio is not, and there's certainly controversy from the proper trial that compared the one-to-one-to-one versus two-to-one-to-one. Different people will have different takes on whether that was a positive trial or a negative trial. Our provincial recommendations that we've been working on, we actually are okay with a a goal of two-to-one-to-one, meaning two pack cells for every unit of FFP and platelets versus the the one-to-one-to-one. And I think a more recent study actually reanalyzed the data from PROMET which just preceded the proper trial. And they actually found an optimal ratio of four to three. So just over a one-to-one. So for every four pack cells, you give three FFP. That's what they found as the, the optimal ratio. Personally, uh, that's sort of where I land. I kind of pick the, the difference between one-to-one and one-to-two. The way that it works out is that I get my pack cells, and most people, I think, get pack cells first. And so I'll get three pack cells into a patient. And only at that point will my FFP arrive. And we already talked about the ABC of MHP. Activate after three units if you haven't already. Balance your ratios and then give uh, calcium and concentrate. And so 
After three is when I start to think about how to balance the resuscitation. And often what I'll do is I'll give a fourth unit of pack cells, and then I'll give two units of FFP. And so my goal is to have whatever predefined ratio that I'm sort of aiming for, I hope to have that balanced by somewhere between 30 and 60 minutes after I've started blood products. And really, the data even might extend that out to somewhere between uh, up to three hours. It's probably a little long for, you know, to be balancing that at 6, 12, 24 hours. But what the nice thing is, is once I get to, I'll give my three units of pack cells, the fourth unit of pack cells then goes in, my next two units are FFP, and now I'm at a two to one ratio. And then what I can do is I just ask my nurse and we just put it on autopilot and they will give one unit of pack cells, then one unit of FFP, and they just toggle back and forth until we stop it. And so then that allows me to really cognitively offload that process and they just know to just go back and forth. And then we maintain a reasonably balanced resuscitation. What you didn't really mention in there is the platelet piece of it. You mentioned the FFP, you mentioned the RBCs, and I get the fact that you're going to start with those RBCs and there's going to be a little bit of catch-up to be played. You want to try to do that catch-up early, but, but it's okay if you gave four units of RBCs before you gave any FFP. But how about those platelets? When are you catching up with the platelets? Or is there a different trigger that you're using to give platelets? We still release platelets as an automatic process. I think it comes in our third cooler. But we actually have, in discussion with our hematologists, and based on the data, replenishing platelets, even in the dysfunctional state that occurs in a patient who might have platelet dysfunction, replacing the platelets may not actually change that dysfunction at a, um, at a cellular level. And so there may be more harm than benefit to giving empiric platelets. And we've actually moved more towards a on-demand process where if the platelet level drops less than 50, maybe less than 100 if you have concomitant uh, ICH, that's when we're giving platelets rather than empirically. Certainly if you're still giving it, if your protocol is, is to give it empirically, that's probably okay. But I think we're going to see a trend towards really being a little bit more specific in these, in these patients that not everybody needs platelets because the benefit just isn't there. And there may be actually some more harm. It's an interesting perspective on the platelets. I think that we have heard about this before. We're going to have to see more data as it comes out. I think most places are trying to still do that one-to-one-to-one with the platelets, but I think it'll be interesting to see whether we really need to be giving platelets or there should be a different trigger for that. One of the other things that we didn't talk about is getting a fibrinogen level and whether that should be helping to trigger the use of different products. In that first 30, 45, 60 minutes, we're not going to have that information back. This might be a little bit more of what drives us beyond that first hour, but how are you guys using fibrinogen levels and using that to guide your administration of product? Yeah, so that's one of the things that a lot of the research now is focused on is it does seem that early on in, the, in these patients' course, they have a really big drop in their fibrinogen level, and that, that's critical in overcoming the, the hemostasis problems that they're experiencing. And so- I think what we're going to probably see is empiric fibrinogen for a lot of these sick patients. That really hasn't, you know, that's a European approach that's often now being um, that used. In North America, we're still often using laboratory values and, and a level less than 1.5 is typically the trigger. But probably we should be, you know, maybe we need that even higher. And so we are shifted and probably many places are now using fibrinogen concentrate over typical cryoprecipitate. The downside with cryo is that it has a really variable 
amount of fibrinogen in it. And it could be anywhere from one, one and a half to three, four grams versus, you know, when you give four grams of of fibrinogen concentrate, you're getting exactly that in a much easier uh, administration process. And so if we can, we'll give, we'll get the uh, fibrinogen level early, but in the really sick patient, I'll just go ahead and empirically give four grams of fibrinogen. It's so frequent. In fact, I was just looking at some blood work yesterday of a, of a trauma patient that we had. Fibrogen was less than one. Predictable. We knew that they were really sick. They were bleeding. And it was clearly beneficial that we were giving it empirically without even waiting for the labs to come back, which, which we knew we were, we were going to see a low level. This is perfect as a segue into the last thing that I want to cover, which is about calcium, because we often talk about empiric delivery of calcium in these patients with massive hemorrhage. And I've asked this question to Hicks, I've asked it to Weingart, I've asked it to Kenji. And it's interesting because you get slightly different answers for everyone. And so I'm going to ask you as well, what's your trigger to give calcium? I'm going to assume from the get-go that you are not waiting for a calcium level to trigger your administration of calcium. So how do you determine, does this patient need calcium? Do they not need calcium? And do you have a protocolized approach to it? Yeah. So again, uh, it's back to ABCs. And so once I hit three units of pack cells, they're getting a dose of calcium, whether it be one gram of calcium chloride or, or a couple of grams of calcium gluconate. It doesn't matter whatever access I have, but for sure after three units and then so every three to six units of pack cells. And I'll then at that point, I'll be able to use the ionized calcium as a guide, which is what is recommended. But the risks of hypocalcinemia are much greater than the risk of me over over treating the patient and getting hypercalcemia. It's just unlikely to happen, particularly with ongoing pack cell resuscitation. So I use three as my as my number, and then every three to six units I'll give and I'll use um, a, a laboratory test there. But that buys me well into an hour or two into the resuscitation. Summary. This shift from massive transfusion protocol to massive hemorrhage protocol is an important one, especially because we do take care of patients with hemorrhage, not patients who need transfusion. It's patients with hemorrhage that we really should be focusing on. And what it really gives us is the fact that there are other interventions aside from products that we need to be giving these patients, whether it be the tranexamic acid, whether it be keeping the patient warm, whether it be calcium, thinking about fibrinogen. And I think what you've given us, and I think the fa- my favorite part of this whole thing is the idea that once you've given three units, you're thinking A, B, C, activate your massive hemorrhage protocol, balance your ratios, give calcium, and concentrate. This helps us to offload some of the cognitive work into the protocol. So once you hit that, I've given three units of packed cells, we're going to start doing all of the other things, giving that calcium. And then I'm going to repeat giving that calcium every three units. We're going to balance the ratios, but understand that we might not get to balance until maybe 45 or 60 minutes into that resuscitation. And that's okay. We're going to give that tranexamic acid. We're going to keep the patient warm. And if we do all of those things, then we are moving towards doing a better overall resuscitation, which is, of course, what we are focused on. And I'm really interested as the data continues to come out, as we get more information, what our triggers are going to be for things like platelets and fibrinogen. And of course, Petro, we'll have you back on when that information comes out to give us updates on how the data may or may not shift your approach to resuscitation. The enema is kind of our nuclear weapon before the worst possible intervention, which is the manual disimpaction. Well, that is one way to kick off a conversation. 
That's Whit Fisher, the mind behind Procedurettes, and the man you always want to run into at a cocktail party. He is going to be talking about some MacGyver hacks in the emergency department. Whit Fisher. Clearly, we are going to be starting with how to make an enema more effective. Charlie, we're friends like you. Who needs enemas? <laughs> you know, constipation is a very common problem. It's even more common in demented patients or super elderly patients or patients with intellectual disability. And that's often due to their, the medications that they're on, their diet, their psychiatric status. Sometimes they're just unable to tell anyone, hey, I think I'm starting to get constipated. And by the time anyone else notices, the, the, it's out of control. Nobody wants that um, end nightmare of a manual disimpaction. It's painful. It's frightening. It's humiliating. It's disgusting for the patient, most of all, but also for us. It's a horrible thing to do to somebody. So we've all had to do it and we all will have to do it. But it's best to know that you've really tried everything else first. Part of the reason that I came up with an enhanced enema is because, you know, one of our greatest weapons, a sodium phosphate enema, the problem is these take time to work. These are hyperosmotic solutions that draw fluid into the bowel as you retain them, that soften the stool and then give you this whole sort of tsunami to poop everything out. The problem is that demented or cognitively impaired patients can't follow instructions sometimes. So you squirt the enema in there, and as soon as you remove the bottle, they squirt it right back out before it has any time to start working. So if that keeps happening, you're never going to get a good effect from an enema, and you're on that downhill path to a manual disimpaction. And it really comes back to the idea that you have to retain the liquid in the vault in order for it to do anything. And we all have seen this. We all know this happens where it just comes out right away, whether it was you or the nurse who inserted that enema, who applied the enema. It comes out right away. You know it didn't work. And you're like, okay, I guess I have no other choice. And with, fortunately, I work with residents. So when the enema fails, I can just tell them, time to go disimpact that guy. But I sometimes work in a solo shop and I got to do this myself. And it would be great if I had a little more success with those enemas, especially like you said, in the cognitively impaired, the people who have some dementia where they can't really follow those instructions. So tell me about the hack that you created to work around this issue. Okay. So what you do is um, you get a few items out. You get, I usually bring two enemas, two sodium phosphate fleets enemas. You get a Tumi syringe, which is that same old plunger syringe that we use to irrigate NG tubes. And you get a Foley catheter and some lube. Of course, you check the balloon on the Foley. Then what I do is I pour the two enema bottles out into the little kidney basin or into the Tumi reservoir that it comes with sometimes in some kits. But what you want to do once you pour those enema bottles out is keep that little orange cap because you're going to need it. The next thing I do is I put that lubed up Foley into the patient's rectum. Sometimes I'll put my finger in there first just to kind of nudge any poop out of the way. And once it's in there, I slowly inflate the balloon. And now I'm going to draw up that enema liquid that I poured out of the bottles into the Tumi syringe and inject it through the Foley lumen. So it goes through the Foley, past the balloon, and into the rectum. And you might have to do this two or three times to get all of that enema liquid in there. If it doesn't flow easily, just sort of rotate the Foley or reposition it or put your in finger in there again for a second. But it should go in really easy. 
once all that enema solution is in there, take that orange cap that you didn't throw away and plug up the Foley with it. Because the balloon is in there, the patient has, it's much harder for the patient to expel that enema liquid, even if they kind of try. You want to tilt the head of the bed down if possible to let gravity uh, do its job. And you want to leave that Foley with the balloon inflated in the rectum 10, 15 minutes. Then deflate the balloon and pull that Foley out and get out of the way. Because yeah, often you will get spectacular results immediately. And sometimes it takes a little longer, but it does work really, really well. Now, is anything perfect? No, of course not. So if you try this and it still doesn't work, at least you know when you've got your finger all the way up there and you're doing the eagle claw disimpaction, at least you know when you're in the middle of that hellish soul-destroying procedure for you and the patient that you tried everything else before putting yourself and them through that. And often the poop is a lot softer too. This is a great tip. And there's a couple of things in there that I think are really important to restate. So you're going to slide that Foley catheter in. Don't throw away that little orange cap. Like you said, that's going to be really important. When you inflate the balloon, you're going to do it gently. The Foley balloon's not that big. It would be hard for me to imagine that you could blow that balloon up big enough to cause any real trouble, but inflate it slowly and then leave everything in place for 10 to 15 minutes. And, and wait, I'll be honest with you, even patients who are cognitively intact, if I tell them to try and hold the enema in for 10 to 15 minutes, very unlikely that's going to happen. So this is a really nice way to make sure that the, the enema actually has enough time to do its job. And like you said, if it's successful, fantastic. If it doesn't work, at least you gave it the best shot you possibly could by allowing the enema to be retained in the space that it needs to be retained in. The second hack also is about getting things out of orifices that aren't supposed to be there. And that's the insect that's stuck in the ear canal. I find that many people outside of emergency medicine and maybe outside of ENT don't believe this is a thing. They don't believe that bugs go into ears or they think it's like an urban legend, but I can't even count the number of times that I've had a patient come in and say, there's something buzzing in my ear and you look and there's a little creepy crawly in there that's still alive. It's still moving around. We have to be really careful of how we're going to do this to not traumatize the ear, but then effectively remove everything. Yeah. I've also seen some really, an insane amount of critters in there. Roaches, little spiders, which I guess are arachnids. I even had a woman come in saying, my ear really hurts. And there was a hornet in her ear. I don't know how the hell that happened. June bugs, ants. And some of these patients, they look like they're having a psychiatric episode because they feel this thing moving around inside their head. It's right next to their tympanic membrane. It's scuttling around. And they describe it as insanely loud and a horrible, horrible feeling that just seems so profoundly wrong. And they're desperate to get it taken out. But you're right. This is a living thing. It's trying to get away if you're trying to kill it. So you don't want to go in there with, with instruments first. You want to kill the insect or immobilize it and then work on getting it out of there. Now, the big mistake people make is they try and flush an insect out with water, either to physically remove it, which could work, or to drown it. But it doesn't work well with water. And that's because the insect or arthropod respiratory system is really superior to ours. They don't have a liquid circulatory system for gas transport. Instead, they have these little apertures on their thorax called spiracles all the way along. And these are open into little branching air channels called tracheoles that are patent with air all the way down to the cellular level. 
where then gas exchange happens through a teeny tiny bit of liquid medium at the very end. So insects live in the wild where water is all over the place, so they're prepared for it. Spiracles, those big openings in their sides, have natural waterproofing to keep water out. So when an insect is like, oops, I'm getting submerged, they just close that off. Water has a hard time getting in, and they have this huge reservoir of oxygen. So they can survive a long time, even if they're completely submerged. So water alone is not great. There are two things that are great, though. And the first one, if you're in the ED, is to use plain old lidocaine. Aqueous lidocaine or viscous lidocaine. I like aqueous because it just gets further down, you know, gets down there faster. And this will paralyze and kill the insect through lidocaine toxicity on all its little sodium channels, just like it does for us. It also has the added benefit of anesthetizing the auditory canal and the TM. So all of a sudden that horrible, scrapey, scuddly feeling is gone because the insect is dead. It also makes it a little bit easier to go in there with a curette or some alligator forceps or even one of those little skinny Fraser suction things and try and remove hunks of the insect's body. It rarely comes out in one piece, but uh, that's a whole other topic. Usually once the insect is dead and you get the big parts out, you can just flush it out with warm saline. The second method which can work is to use oils. And that's because those waterproof spiracles on the insect's thorax have lipophilic properties. So any oil will rapidly track into those tracheoles and displace all the oxygen and asphyxiate the insect really fast, in less than a minute. Where are we going to get oil? Well, we often have mineral oil as a laxative or as an enema formulation in the ED. So if I need to get some, I just say, hey, nurse, get me 10 mLs of mineral oil, and I just drop a few drops in the patient's ear, lubes it up nicely, kills the insect immediately. And outside the ER, if you're in the, on a camping trip or something, you can do vegetable oil for this. That'll work as well. Once the uh, insect is dead and you start removing it, the oils in particular will kind of turn it into insect pudding. It's just kind of like goop coming out. Um, and often you'll be like, oh, I got a wing. Oh, I got a leg. But once the, the main body of the insect is out, just flushing it with regular warm saline will passively push out the rest of the dead material. Well, I don't think any of our listeners thought tuning in to this particular segment, they were going to get an entomology lesson, but very nice to know exactly how it is that insects actually breathe and make sense of why we don't want to try and drown them with water. I also, obviously, putting water into a person's ear can be very uncomfortable in and of itself. So something to avoid for sure. I love the lidocaine approach for exactly what you said. Not only does it kill the insect very quickly, it also anesthetizes the ear and makes everything else simpler to do. But I like having the backup solution, especially when you're not in the emergency department and you have maybe a kid or, or somebody else that you know that has one of these things go in and you want to avoid going to the emergency department and having another option that works really well. So oil as a backup, but lidocaine is definitely my go-to. And I've used all the different approaches you mentioned to actually removing the bug. I find the Fraser suction works really well as long as you are gentle with it. And the Fraser suction is the one that's got like the little angle on it that they use for a lot of ENT procedures. It's got a good amount of suction, but it's really, really skinny. And so it's easy to manipulate it into the ear and suck the bug out. And obviously make sure that after you think you've gotten everything out, that you take a good look and make sure you've actually cleared the canal. Let me ask you a question along with this. When you remove it, do you usually send these patients home with some antibiotic eardrops as like a prophylactic kind of situation? Or is that not really necessary? 
You know, I usually don't, unless there's some type of visible injury inside the ear, um, which there almost never is. I just say, no, I think you're going to be fine. I, I might give them, you know, tell them, use one of those little over-the-counter earwax irrigation bulbs, just in case there's a, a wing or two in there that we forgot. You know, if I was going to asphyxiate an insect in the field with vegetable oil, I would probably make sure that the child does go to the ER to make sure that, first of all, it was an insect in there and not a pebble, and that all of it is removed. You know, insects run around on our skin all the time and don't give us infections. I don't think they're super likely to do it in the ear. And the Fraser suction is super useful. It's what most people recommend. I'm always a little bit terrified of it because I just think I'm going to suck out the patient's TM or something, but I know that it works. So They are pretty aggressive suctions. It's true. That's why you really do have to be gentle when you're using that. Just like everything else we talked about today, you got to be a little gentle. Summary. And that kind of wraps us up for this segment with some really good tips here. I particularly like the one about how to do that retention enema with the Foley catheter. I think that's going to be really helpful for a lot of folks who have run into this problem over and over again, where the patient just can't keep that enema in place. And I'm not going to say that it's going to avoid all manual disimpactions, but I bet it's going to reduce a lot of those manual disimpactions that we had to do before. And then again, some good tips on removing the bug. Make sure to kill it first. Don't think you can drown it with water. And then use one of these tips, either the Fraser suction or a, or a Q-tip to get the bug actually out of there. Wit, I can't wait to have you back on for more of these. Since you did send me so many of these tips, we're just going to pick two more and get you on next time to do another couple of these MacGyver workarounds. Excellent. And you can save that enema trick for Saturday night as well. <laughs> All right, Wit. Can't wait to have you back on later. Okay. Big smiles. And uh, <laughs> thanks again. Bye-bye. Wit Fisher. Innervation, or really the lack of innervation, is a crucial topic. So when we transplant a heart from one person to another, we have to sever all the vascular and nervous system connections, and obviously we reconnect the vascular components in the recipient, but the heart loses all of its efferent and afferent signaling pathways. Patients who are status post-cardiac transplant can be extremely intimidating when they come into the emergency department. So we've got David Gatz, an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Maryland, to break down the common things that we see in cardiac transplant patients presenting to the emergency department. And he's starting with some of the anatomical changes that occur with the transplanted heart, specifically with the innervation. And now let's chat with David Gatz. What does this do? It has a lot of consequences. On the efferent side, signaling going into the heart, that lack of parasympathetic vagal fibers is going to cause your patient's resting heart rate to increase. So it'll be actually normal for your patient to have a resting heart rate that could be anywhere like 80 to 110 beats per minute. It also means that something like vagal maneuvers, if you're trying to break an SVT, won't work. And similarly, the heart will also respond differently to some medications. A classic example, they're going to be hypersensitive to adenosine, for example. So you're actually going to use a lower dose in these patients. Lack of sympathetic fibers decreases the ability and speed at which the body is going to respond to something like stress or exercise. So you may not get this you know, robust increase in heart rate right away, even though your patient could be sick, say septic, something like that. And then on the reverse side, on the afferent side of things, this disruption means that these patients 
may not sense or really cannot sense angina during an ischemic event, at least not initially after their transplant. And that last piece is exactly what the listener wanted to know about. In these post-transplant patients, if they can't feel typical cardiac chest pain, how do we know if they're having ACS? I mean, granted, the transplanted heart, we're assuming, was a relatively healthy heart when it went in, but these patients are living longer and longer. They can still develop coronary artery disease. So how do we know if the patient is having an ischemic event? What symptoms are they going to come in with? That is an excellent question. And your listener asked an excellent question as well. And I I remember the exact prompt there. And, And this is where things can get a little tricky because when it comes to that classic anginal symptom, as we noted, it's often not there. But reinnervation is possible. And it depends on the nerve type. But reinnervation can occur as early as three months, but more commonly around sort of two years out. And that reinnervation tends to be a little patchy. It's not uniform across the heart. But Ultimately, about 20% of patients will regain that ability to feel kind of that typical anginal pain. But what do we do with the rest of these patients? That's where we do have to look for some of those atypical symptoms. So any sort of exertional symptom, if they're feeling short of breath, or really if they just say, hey, I don't feel right, that's going to be a big red flag for you. It's almost like treating them like the older patients who come in with vague symptoms. We always get an EKG. We often will get a troponin because we know that they can really be masquerading with these alternate symptoms. So we just have to have an understanding that these patients may not have typical anginal symptoms. And we have to look for the other things, the nausea, the fatigue, the shortness of breath, and any bit of chest pain should be really triggering that full cardiac assessment when the patient presents to us. Exactly. So I'm going to get an ECG on these patients when they hit the door. But that leads us to another question of what am I going to see on that ECG? Am I I going to see normal sinus rhythm? Is there a specific block pattern that I expect to see? What should a normal ECG look like on a transplant patient? Well, if we kind of break it down how we normally read an EKG, if you look at the rate, as we kind of noted already, it's often faster. So that 80 to 110 range, and you should be able to look back on your patient and see sort of what's this patient's particular baseline. The rhythm, it should be sinus. We're bringing a healthy heart into this individual. Previously, there were some prior surgical techniques where you could actually end up, interestingly, with two SA nodes that would be kind of competing for conduction. But nowadays, the surgical technique tends to be what we call bicaval technique, where we form an anastomosis instead at the SVC and IVC. So you'll only have that one SA node. But Rhythm is important to pay attention to. You can see some PVCs. Those are common. They're benign. But any other arrhythmia should trigger a potential red flag. So new AFib, new bradycardia, that can be a sign that something is wrong. As we move past rate and rhythm, when it comes to the access, it's really just quite variable because hearts won't necessarily fit in in the recipient's chest the same way. Intervals, right bundle branch block is common. The exact etiology isn't clear. There are a couple theories out there, but you should expect to often see that right bundle branch block. And then fortunately, when it comes to those ischemic changes, so say you are worried about that patient maybe presenting with a STEMI or ACS event, those are going to follow our typical injury patterns, maybe in the setting of that right bundle, but you're still going to see those T-wave inversions, ST-segment elevations and depressions. Medications. Let's branch from the anatomy, the physiology, the conduction pathologies or the normals over to some of the medications these patients are going to be on. We know they're immunosuppressed. We know they're going to be on a host of immunosuppressant medications. 
And the medications we have now are a bit more advanced than simple corticosteroids. What medications are we typically going to see the heart transplant patient on? Great question. And this is a critical topic that we could easily spend an entire podcast reviewing because this is a huge part of who these patients are. But at a more global view, immunosuppression kind of occurs in a couple stages. First, oftentimes, particularly in cardiac transplant, maybe 50% of patients, there'll be what we call this initial induction where they get this intensive perioperative course that's supposed to really bring down the immune system as that's a high-risk period for rejection. But for our patients in the ED, what we'll often see is they'll be on their maintenance regimen. And this usually starts off as a three-drug regimen, and then hopefully, if possible, gets weaned down to two drugs. So you're looking most often at a calcineurin inhibitor, an antimetabolite, and then ideally a corticosteroid that's eventually getting tapered down and off. That can occur around 12 months that they're able to get off those corticosteroids. But as we'll get into it more later, cardiac transplants are more likely than some of our other solid organ transplant recipients to need aggressive immunosuppression long-term. The fact that they are on these immunomodulators before the surgery is really important for us to know because we might see these patients pre-op. And we need to understand that we have to ask that question. What immunomodulators are you on? What immunosuppressants are you on? And because of that host of medications that they can be on, especially those steroids that they can be on for up to 12 months, they are at an increased risk for all of the run-of-the-mill infections, the pneumonia, the sepsis, the UTIs. But then there are those rare infections, the ones that we don't really see except in the patients that are immunosuppressed, PJP, CMV, fungal infections. Are these patients going to be on prophylactic medications for those infections? Exactly. And this is where transplant medicine has made some impressive gains is in this world of opportunistic infections due to exactly what you mentioned, that aggressive prophylaxis. Exactly what meds and for how long your patient is going to be on them, that'll vary. It'll be based on your patient, the recipient. So maybe what infections they already had in their body. It'll be based on the donor organ, whether maybe certain infections came along with it and potentially based on where you practice. So if there's you know, certain fungi that are common in the area where you're practicing, that may also change what your patient needs to take. But really the key thing is to always keep a high suspicion for occult infections in this population. Because of that immunosuppression, they may not mount a fever or typical leukocytosis. So if they tell you something feels wrong, believe them. Infections. I remember learning in medical school about the different phases that we go through with these transplant and which infections are more common. And I will be honest that as soon as I took the exam that I had to, I forgot all of those <laughs> things. And I think we could use a little bit of, of a refresher of what infections to worry about in which phase after transplant. Yeah, this, this is a great pearl. And that's to recognize the three major infection windows post-transplant. The first window is what we kind of call zero to 30 days at first month. And as you might expect, right, these patients underwent a major surgery, a major hospitalization. So it's really those nosocomial infections that we're most worried about, your clapses, cotties, ventilator-associated pneumonias, and certainly surgical site infections. As we move past that into kind of phase two, which is one month up to about six months out, that's where we've kind of reached the highest levels of immunosuppression. And therefore, this is also the window where we tend to be most worried about opportunistic infections and your patients are going to be on that prophylaxis. So this is a lot of your medical school favorites, tuberculosis, 
EBV, fungi, parasites, and, and certainly CMV is one that's, that's really important in this population as, as an opportunistic infection. Once we get past that window, we start figuring out what our balance is. We're able to reduce the immunosuppression to whatever their sort of steady state is going to be moving forward. So usually by about six months onward, certainly opportunistic infections are still possible, but we're more thinking about those regular community pathogens. So respiratory virus, even COVID, community-acquired pneumonias, those sorts of things. In the notes that you sent me on this topic, CMV came up a couple of times. And it's funny because it's one of these viruses that we really don't think about very much. We used to think about it quite a bit when we had a lot of patients who had HIV, who developed AIDS because we didn't have proper medications available. But we don't see a lot of CMV in the States anymore, except in this group where we really do think about it quite a bit. So what do we need to pay attention to in terms of CMV for these patients? CMV does deserve that special mention just because it tends to be the most prevalent opportunistic infection in this population. It is something we can sometimes have a little bit of a hint about based on our own patient's history. So as you open their chart, you should be able to see, was the donor CMV positive? Was the recipient CMV positive? It can certainly also just be a new infection. But the reason it matters so much is because basically you can add an itis to just about any organ in the body and CMV can do it. Now, in transplant patients, it's often an enteritis presenting with diarrhea, sometimes a pneumonitis, and there's also a generalized syndrome that's fairly common as well. Now, fortunately, as we mentioned about the prophylaxis, the incidence and timing of CMV has been pretty greatly impacted by the use of those medications. Rejection. All right, let's bridge from there to the final topic that I want to touch on, which is about rejection. We talk about hyperacute rejection. Typically, that's going to happen so quickly after transplant. It's not really going to involve us in the emergency department, but we do have to worry about acute rejection. That can occur in that first six months. And that's where we are very likely to be involved. We're very likely to be the first person who sees that patient. So what's going on here and how do these patients present? Give us a couple of tips on how we can make sure we pick this up and we don't miss it. Yeah, rejection is appropriately so, often at the top of everyone's mind for any of these patients when they're coming into the ED. And it's good because it can be quite subtle. What we as ED physicians cannot afford to miss are really any signs of what I'll call allograft dysfunction. So in a cardiac recipient, this can have a variety of presentations. Certainly any sort of exertional symptoms, so exertional dyspnea, some other subtle symptoms might include peripheral edema or new arrhythmias, as we are kind of talking about. It is worth noting that if your patients made it past the first year without any significant rejection, they tend to do pretty well down the line from that standpoint. If they're going to have problems, it'll often be something else other than rejection. The exception to this is, of course, if someone were to stop taking their medications. And that's really the only time we'll be able to make the diagnosis definitively in the emergency department, because we're not obviously doing biopsies. But if you were to have someone come in and say, hey, I stopped taking all of my immunosuppression three weeks ago, then that's something where you'd immediately be on the line with your, your transplant team to coordinate some high-dose steroids for that patient. And I used to joke that, you know, this is kind of a fictional example that you're unlikely to encounter. But of course, the last time I gave a lecture on this topic, actually, it was Amal Matu texted me the very next week saying he had exactly that scenario of someone who had stopped taking their meds. And this really matters in heart transplant because unlike other solid organ transplant recipients, these tend not to be HLA matched. 
So the risk of rejection can occur really fast. So this is a population where they cannot afford to miss a single dose of their medications. Summary. We see patients all the time who come in because of lapses in their care, lapses in their medications, and we just restart their medications and send them on their way. These are the patients that no matter what symptoms they're coming in with, if they say they've lapsed on their medications for whatever reason, we can get them restarted. But more importantly, we need to talk to our transplant service and find out what should we be restarting them on? And possibly, do you guys want to see this person before they leave the hospital, before they leave the emergency department to make sure that we have that care really lined up to protect the patient and, of course, protect the organ that we have put into that patient? And David, I think this gives us a really nice overview of the major problems that we need to be on the lookout for in the emergency department, the major things that we need to be careful of. And as always with these segments on topics that we don't see very often, I think it helps to empower us to start taking care of these patients. We still want to involve our consultants very early in the management of that patient because they're very complicated. And of course, their team has invested a lot in the care of that patient, and they've invested a lot in their training to know how to take care of them. But we do want to know at least the initial steps in being able to take care of those patients when they come into our emergency departments. And David, I would love it if you can take everything that we just discussed all the work that you have ever done researching transplants, lecturing on transplants, and wrap it up into one neat little 30-second summary for everyone to take home. Absolutely. And, and we covered a lot in a short amount of time here, but let me just summarize what I think are some of the most important things that make this population so unique. First is obviously the surgically transplanted organ, and just recognize that comes with consequences. Pain perception, drug responses, even EKG findings are going to be different. The second thing to really remember about this population is the role of immunosuppression. These medications are powerful and cause, for example, plenty of side effects just on their own. But the role of immunosuppression also goes well beyond just preventing rejection, right? We spent some time talking about how this can result in subtle and atypical infections, and it also increases the risk of other processes like malignancy. So really, at the end of the day, the most important thing is just trust the patient. If they say something is wrong, believe them and never hesitate to reach out to their transplant team. They follow these patients extremely closely for life, and they are there to work with you and help you find the best and safest disposition for your patient. Wait, 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 wait. I thought I was going to summarize everything he's ever learned about heart transplants. What, what happened? You're not going to follow up on that, Swami? Huh? David, thanks so much for discussing all this with us. Ugh. We started off kind of on the heavy end of the transplants with heart, and I think we're going to come back to you. We'll hit liver, we'll hit kidney, we'll hit lung. Any other organs that we should, I guess, corneas? Do you do, do you talk about corneas too? Can we talk about <laughs> I haven't yet, but you know, there's always room for more <laughs> learning. But yeah, no, we, we, we do it all. Small intestine, pancreas. Hey, there's, there's not much in the human body you can't replace anymore. Excellent. Well, we're going to hit you up and talk about some more of these solid organ transplants. So again, we raise our comfort level and we know what to do immediately when these patients hit the door. Thanks so much. Thank you, Swami. Dr. Eileen Claudius with some pediatric pearls. So I trained at a big transplant center and following residency, I was really comfortable managing transplant patients. But a lot of time has gone by since then. We won't discuss exactly how much. And we had a pediatric renal transplant come in the other day, and I thought, gosh, does any of the stuff that I learned in residency still apply? How much has changed? And thankfully, I am joined today 
by Tim Rattan and Brittany DeFabio, and they are going to tell us how much has changed since I was in residency when it comes to pediatric transplant patients. Welcome. I am a third-year pediatric emergency medicine fellow, and we are at UT Austin Dell Medical School. And I am one of the faculty here. I trained in emergency medicine and then did my fellowship here. So I think the biggest thing with these patients is the fever. You're looking at this kid who looks fine, but they have a temperature of 103. You know they've had a transplant. You know they're on immunosuppressant medications. What is the first thought that I should have when I see that patient? What do I do? Fever can be either rejection or infection. When we're thinking of infection, if the patient is septic, you treat them just like any other septic patient, quickly with broad-spectrum antibiotics and fluids. If they're not septic and you're thinking about what they're most susceptible to, then you really want to think about the timeline after the transplantation. So if it's within the first month, that's when you're thinking of surgical site infections, nosocomial infections, donor-derived infections. About one to six months out, that's when they're on their most immunosuppression. So they're more likely to get those opportunistic infections like PJP, histoplasma, coccidioides. All of those will require more specialized testing as an inpatient, but those are things to think about. And then farther along, greater than six months out, that's when their immunosuppression may be tapered and they're more similar to get infections like their immunocompetent peers. There's not a lot of differences when you're comparing kids versus adults in this regard. A couple of more developmental nuances that'll pop up, especially in the younger kids, where it's just hard to tell what's going on sometimes. They're just fussy or cranky. But most of the same principles that Brittany was talking about apply almost the same to our adult patients. So let's take this into kind of a real world scenario. So I see a kid that's presenting in the first month following transplant. You mentioned surgical site infections and nosocomial infections. So obviously that makes a lot of sense. I'll look at the incision site, maybe do whatever relevant imaging. But then you mentioned donor-derived infections. What does that actually mean for me in terms of what I should be ordering and how I should be dispositioning this child? Donor-derived infections are something we need to think about. They are much less common now due to the excellent screening of transplant donors that we have, but you do have to think of certain bacteria like MRSA, VRE, fungal infections, parasite infections, but again, much less common now. Let's say I have a kid in that really immunosuppressed period of time between one and six months, and they come in with what looks like a URI, but they do have a temperature of 103. So obviously, I'm going to do a chest x-ray looking for things like pneumocystis, pneumonia that I may not do otherwise. How much further do I go? Does every one of these children need blood cultures? Does everyone need antibiotics? Does everyone need admission? I would say yes. I would say that these patients are going to require a little bit more of a workup than your standard patient. They are on immunosuppressants, so you will have to do labs on all of these. Blood cultures and fungal cultures are both prudent in this situation, and most will require antibiotics. This is definitely a discussion that you'll have with your transplant team because based on level of concern, they may need to admit and do further testing for one of these more rare diseases. Now, if I change this child ever so slightly and I give them a clear source, like a urinary tract infection, Somebody with a kidney transplant and a urinary tract infection is obviously very different than, say, a patient with a heart transplant and a UTI. They both still might need a little more of a workable evaluation, but one you might be able to stop sooner than, than the other. And if you take the same child and you make them two years out from their transplant, 
They haven't been bolused on a lot of steroids recently. They've been doing pretty well in general on a reasonably tapered dose of immunosuppressants. What do you do differently with that child? If they've been on their stable immunosuppression and they're several years out from transplant, their risk is a little bit lower. It's not none because of the fact that they are still on immunosuppression. So I would still say that labs would be necessary at that time. Most will still require blood cultures and antibiotics. And there have been studies showing that children on immunosuppressants may not mount as much of a leukocytosis or elevated CRP like other children, so a normal white count on them may be falsely reassuring, and so sending cultures and giving antibiotics is never a bad idea in these patients. But again, maybe less concern and something that the transplant team would be worth talking to and discharging that patient with close follow-up. Okay, so it sounds like we're never going to really reach the point that we would be at with a patient who had not gotten a transplant. But we may get ourselves to a point that with a little bit of blood cultures, a little bit of antibiotics, maybe an x-ray, and a call to establish follow-up with the transplant surgeon, we could send them home. Correct. Yeah. Like we said, a couple years out from transplant, they do really well and they do have similar illnesses to their other peers, but they're still at a little bit higher risk and it needs to be taken seriously. Can we talk a little bit about more common transplants? I think that the big one that we see a lot, and I think a lot of non-transplant centers see a lot is renal transplant. Anything special to know about them? So when it comes to renal transplants, there are a few things that you need to consider. First of all, patients can actually have a recurrence of their primary disease that caused them to get the transplant in the first place. So it is very important to screen for renal failure, whether that be acute or chronic. Additionally, urinary tract infections are very common. They're actually equally as common between males and females in the kidney transplant population, and they will require treatment, especially if it progresses to pyelonephritis. Most of those kids are getting IV antibiotics in admission. Furthermore, if they have an acute rejection, this may only present with a little bit of an elevated creatinine, possibly some hypertension, fever, and oliguria, but this is something that may just have very subtle signs and really requires a conversation with the transplant team to decide if it warrants admission for further workup. With kids, one big difference is the creatinine numbers can be so different and a lot smaller than we're used to seeing in adults. So something that we might think of as a nothing change in creatinine in an older patient might actually be a really significant percentage change. So making sure you're looking back at the previous creatinine, even if you've got a kid who goes from 0.6 to 0.7, that might be a significant enough change that it could be potentially worrisome for early rejection. And what do I do? So I have a kid who comes in and I check the creatinine before it was 0.4, now it's 0.7. It's pretty clear that there's a problem. Do I give them fluids? Do I not give them fluids? Do I give them steroids? Where do I start while I'm waiting for a call back? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're going to get different answers depending on what transplant specialist you're looking at. I think for us in the ED, I probably would not start steroids in that case. That's different from some of the cardiac patients that we're going to talk about a little bit later on, because this is something that you have time. It's usually not a hyperacute rejection. A little bit of fluids is not going to hurt as long as you don't have any concurrent cardiac issues, which honestly are pretty rare in most of these kids. But you have time with the kidney kids to figure out what you're going to do. It's not an immediate time sensitive thing most of the time. And if a child's had a renal transplant and they have normal renal function, do you have to be particularly careful about nephrotoxic medications? I think when it comes to the question of nephrotoxicity, it's not so much about the graft itself, but the immunosuppression medications that they're on. Those medications can be very nephrotoxic, and so combining those with other medications that are concerning can cause a problem, and that is something you need to think about. 
if they have a good functioning graft, it's not chronically in rejection, then you can pretty much safely give these children fluids and treat them as if they had normal kidney function. All right, let's move on to the scary patients because you did mention that with a renal transplant, you have a little bit of time, but with cardiac transplants, you often don't have any time at all. So let's talk about those patients and what we need to do if we're faced with a sick cardiac transplant. Yeah, definitely. Acute rejection in the cardiac transplant patient can really present in a variety of ways. Most times they're asymptomatic. They are picked up on routine screening by their transplant team but other times they can present with severe hemodynamic instability. And this is where you need to think about what medications to use and how their transplant affects the medications that you use. I think one thing that's important to note is that cardiac transplants, they do not have nerve function like a regular heart does. So they will not present with chest pain in your classic signs of ischemia. That is one thing to think about. When it comes to patients that present with hemodynamic instability, if you're concerned that they're having rejection and you're worried about their heart function, you want to start with fluid boluses, but maybe smaller than you would in another patient, perhaps 10 per kilo boluses. You can use epinephrine. It actually works similarly as in a non-transplanted heart, but you want to avoid induction agents that will cause myocardial depression because these can have a more amplified effect on the transplanted heart. Atropine will not be effective because of the denervated status of the heart. Adenosine was once thought to be contraindicated in heart transplant patients because it does cause a risk of prolonged AV block, but some recent studies are actually showing that low doses may be effective and safe, and you can consider using these after talking to the transplant team if needed for supraventricular tachycardia. Most studies are showing using one-fourth the dose of the regular dose of adenosine is what would be prudent in these patients. Wow, that's a lot of math. All right, so that all sounds great. But let's say I'm literally standing there in a single coverage emergency department and a five-year-old with a heart transplant comes in really hypotensive with signs of heart failure. What do I actually do? So in those situations, I would start with fluid boluses, small fluid boluses and reassessing frequently. Then if needed, epinephrine would be my choice. Definitely starting antibiotics to make sure we're not missing some kind of occult infection. And then thinking about rejection as well. This is going to be a very quick call to your transplant team to set up a bedside echo and then a formal echocardiogram. And these patients are getting admitted quickly. I would throw in, if you're in a setting in which you don't have some of those resources, certainly if you're able to do a bedside echo and you're comfortable using that for function, that's huge. But if you're stuck and you're making a decision, if you think the kid's in failure, you have to assume that there's probably some rejection. And I would consider doing some high-dose steroids. And what is high-dose? The adult dose is around a gram or so of solumedrol, methylprednisolone, since we're not supposed to use brand names, of course. And then the pediatric pulse therapy dosing is 30 milligrams per kilo up to that adult max. Wow. That's a lot. It is. And I think it makes a lot of us nervous to give that kind of dose. But if you've got that sick kid in front of you, especially if you don't have access to the specialty team, sometimes you just got to give it if you think that the acute rejection is a cause of their heart failure. Yeah, I guess at that point, I'm not going to get more nervous just because I'm giving steroids. So I figure I've kind of maxed out on nervousness. We might as well max the kid out on therapy as well. Yeah, we're already pretty nervous in those situations. And you mentioned epinephrine. Is that preferred over norepinephrine in this situation? Yes, epinephrine is more effective in these patients. Now, you mentioned ischemia. Is there something that we should know about heart transplants and ischemia? And how do we diagnose that? And how is it treated? 
So ischemia can sometimes be a symptom of the chronic rejection that happens in these patients later down the road after transplant. This typically presents as a coronary vasculopathy, and it can cause graft failure, arrhythmias, and infarction. This infarction will not follow a normal pattern like myocardial ischemia in adults does, so it may be a more global situation with some vague symptoms. So basically, this five-year-old could come in with relatively vague fatigue, shortness of breath, and when you get an EKG, you see global ischemia, and the next thing you know, Junior's getting a cabbage. Exactly. The big key here is just comparing their EKG to previous EKGs. The findings can be very subtle, and a lot of times it can be minor changes from their baseline. Now, these patients are on so many medications. Obviously, we can't talk about all of them, but can you go through the big medications that we can expect to see a transplant patient taking and let us know some of the big side effects and things to watch for? So most patients are on a triple therapy. This normally includes a calcineurin inhibitor, and this would be tacrolimus or cyclosporin. They're usually also on an anti-metabolite, such as mycophenolate or azathioprine, and also steroids. And when it comes to these medications, they all have some side effects you need to be aware of. Tacrolimus, in particular, is very nephrotoxic. These are the patients that you really need to watch for renal failure and use caution when using other nephrotoxic medications. It is not suggested that we use NSAIDs in these patients because it can have an effect on their kidneys. Rarely, patients on tacrolimus also experience hypertensive urgency or emergencies, and they can actually be at risk for PRESS, that posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. So if a patient on tacrolimus comes in and is having acute neurologic changes, an MRI may be needed to rule that out. What about mycophenolate? The most common side effect of mycophenolate are GI disturbances, so diarrhea, vomiting. They may also have some cytopenias, and that's also seen with azathioprine, which is another anti-metabolite. All right, we've been talking mostly about solid organ transplants, but bone marrow and stem cell transplants, those are like an entirely different animal. Can you just give us a few tips on things like graft versus host and red flags that will keep us from killing our bone marrow and stem cell transplant patients? Yeah, these patients are also scary. I think the key to these are kind of thinking about them like the solid organ transplants and that timeline that we have. For that first period after their bone marrow transplant, they're usually hospitalized, which is great. But then after about four weeks, they're discharged from the hospital. And from that four week to 100 days, they still have impaired T-cell immunity and are at higher risk for reactivated or new viral infections. One thing to look for during that period is hemorrhagic cystitis, which can easily progress to renal failure if not recognized and treated. If you're concerned for hemorrhagic cystitis in these patients, you want to start fluids and get an ultrasound of the kidneys to make sure there's no obstruction and get urology involved quickly. These patients will usually require admission for further antibiotics and treatment and possible interventions if needed. After that 100-day mark, they're still on their graft-versus-host disease prophylaxis and are at risk for serious infection and should be treated quickly, just like what we spoke about with the solid organ transplant patients. And can you talk a little bit more about graft versus host? I feel like it's one of those things like lupus or syphilis that can present as anything, and it's really scary and can be really serious. But I'm not entirely certain what we're supposed to do about it in the emergency department. Yeah, it can present pretty much like anything. And even the naming is confusing. We call it acute graft versus host disease and chronic graft versus host disease, but that has nothing to do with the timing. You can actually get either one at any time after the transplant. Acute graft-versus-host disease is typically going to present 
with this painful or pruritic maculopapular rash that includes the palms and soles and can actually progress to an erythroderma bolus formation rash that looks like Steven Johnson syndrome. It can also cause diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, and elevated bilirubin. These symptoms are graded on a scale to determine treatment, which ranges from more immunosuppression and steroids, which will be handled by the inpatient team. Chronic graft-versus-host disease is similar to an immunologic autoimmune process, and this presents more with sclerotic or lichenoid lesions, as well as dry eyes, conjunctival inflammation, GI symptoms that are similar to the ones that I stated for acute graft-versus-host, but they may also get esophageal webs and strictures. They can present with mucositis, mouth ulcers. The scary presentation is bronchiolitis obliterans, which can just present with shortness of breath, cough, and wheezing. And then you'll see this air-trapping bronchial wall thickening on chest CT. And that can be very difficult to treat and requires admission for biopsy for diagnosis. Most of the treatments are not things that we're going to do in the ED, but you can see all these subtle signs and it's up to us sometimes to make those initial diagnoses. So think about that kid with a little coffee and wheezing, bring it up with their specialty team might be the thing that'll make a big difference for them to get an early diagnosis and treatment. I always hear this term PTLD thrown around. Can you talk for a minute about that? And if that's something that we should be recognizing in the emergency department and how we recognize it? So PTLD stands for post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease, and it is a broad term that's used to describe the spectrum of neoplastic diseases seen after transplant. And most of these cases are due to EBV infection, which causes proliferation and mutation of lymphocytes in immunosuppressed patients. These kids are most at risk for PTLD in the first year after transplant, and they may be pretty asymptomatic when they develop their EBV infection. So they may have fever, malaise, lymphadenopathy. It can look like a lot of different viral infections. And our role is really just to send an EBV titer and speak with the transplant team about further testing. So basically, if I see a kid who just hasn't been acting right, whether it's malaise or fever or diarrhea, whatever it is that's been going on for a little bit longer than the parents feel comfortable with, that's when I would start thinking about PTLD, send an EBV titer. Exactly. Yeah, I would say an EBV titer would be the most important test at that point. And if you are really concerned about the lymphadenopathy, you can get a CT scan because a lot of times that will show up on that CT scan. The formal diagnosis does require further admission and biopsies. So that will be the definitive test. Anything else that you have in your back pocket is like a pearl to treat children who have had a transplant, are on transplant medications, or a time that you encountered a pitfall and you learned from it something that you tell yourself you're never, ever going to do again and could tell us to never, ever do? The medications that these patients are on have a lot of interactions with other medications. So anytime you're thinking about starting a medication, even if it's something benign, it is important to talk to your pharmacist, talk to the transplant team to make sure there are no interactions with these medications because you can get yourself into some trouble with something that you would think is benign. I can think of multiple M&M style or 72-hour returns of folks who did not get in touch with the transplant team, in particular for some of these subtle changes where the treating physician just didn't recognize the creatinine level and it's subtly off. And then a day or two later, it's markedly off and with significant rejection or renal failure. So I think that's the kind of thing that really those subtle differences can make a difference for the kid. And then also for you not having to deal with a 72-hour return or a bounce back. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Summary. Number one. A chief complaint of fever must be evaluated within the context of the timeline since the transplant was performed. 
In addition, not only are infectious sources on the list, but so is rejection. Now, while we're on the subject of fever, remember that these kids are on immunosuppressants, so they may not mount a leukocytosis or even an elevated C-reactive protein. Number two, in pediatric patients with renal transplants, remember that even small changes in creatinine could indicate a problem. Same with cardiac transplant patients. Small changes in the EKG from baseline could also be a big problem. Number three, while rejection may often be treated with high-dose steroids, there's usually not a rush to give them without talking to the transplant team first, except in one circumstance, acute cardiac transplant rejection. This is something we have to get on top of right away and maybe an indication for you to start high-dose steroids. Number three, graft-versus-host disease comes in two flavors, acute and chronic. Those two terms have actually nothing to do with the time of onset. They can happen at any point after the transplant. But there are two different clinical syndromes that are differentiated based on biopsy. Many organ systems can be involved in terms of clinical presentation. There can be derm findings, GI symptoms, pulmonary symptoms. The key is to think about it since they're going to need that biopsy. Both will ultimately be treated with steroids and immunosuppression once a definitive diagnosis is made. And finally, medications. Hope that you have a pharmacist to consult because these patients are on a lot of medications. And the drug-drug interaction list here can be pretty significant and have major implications, like nephrotoxicity, which you certainly don't want in your renal transplant patient. This is actually an incredibly important question. It hits on how sick these patients are, and probably more importantly, what we need to do in the ED. Brit If that voice isn't super familiar to you, you haven't been listening close enough, that is Dr. Britt Long, and he is going to be bringing us all of the information that we need to know about a topic that I have to admit I don't understand nearly as well as I should, that's acute cholangitis, and we're starting off with how is acute cholangitis different from acute cholecystitis? Let's start with cholecystitis first. This is inflammation of the gallbladder. It's most commonly from an obstruction either in the gallbladder neck or the cystic duct, that drains only the gallbladder. That means it's contained in one location. And patients are more commonly going to have this gradually worsening illness. Cholangitis is different. In cholangitis, there's a blockage somewhere further down in the biliary tree. That means it's not just one location we have to worry about. That obstruction might be a gallstone, it could be a benign stricture, or it might be some sort of new malignancy. No matter that specific cause, that obstruction increases pressure within the biliary tree. It also creates dysnitis for bacterial colonization. Then you get infection of bile that's normally sterile. Those bacteria multiply. They then get up into the biliary ducts. They reach the liver. And then finally, they get to the bloodstream. This is where we have a problem. Patients rapidly progress to shock. Mortality can reach 100% if the patient is not treated at this point. Even with appropriate diagnosis and therapy with our current treatments, if they reach that stage with septic shock, mortality ranges anywhere between 2 and 30%. This is huge. And that difference between these two is really important because acute cholecystitis, I mean, some of those patients can be treated with antibiotics and the surgery can be deferred to later. The acute cholangitis patients, though, in general, should be sicker. They should have systemic symptoms. They can present with septic shock, and you might not even be sure of where that sepsis is coming from. And I think this is the tricky part, Britt, is figuring out in that patient, 
how do I get steered towards cholangitis as the possible source? I'm not going to do an abdominal CT scan on every patient with sepsis, but hopefully there are some pieces of the history and physical exam that push me towards cholangitis and push me towards imaging. You're absolutely right. If you open up a textbook, you're going to read about this classic presentation with Charcot's triad and Reynolds pentad. I might be causing some flashbacks there. I wish it was that easy for diagnosis, but most of the time it's not. Charcot's triad, if you can recall, is fever, right upper quadrant pain, and jaundice. It is very specific, about 85%, but it has pretty poor sensitivity, around 25%. Reynolds pentad is Charcot's triad plus hypotension and altered mental status. This sensitivity is even worse. It's less than 7%. Patients are commonly going to present with abdominal pain. This is going to be present in 60 to 100%. Jaundice is also very common around 60 to 70%. Often patients are going to have systemic symptoms, fevers, chills, rigors. They may come in with complications from bacteremia like shock or liver abscess. But especially in older patients, you might just find altered mental status or it can present as sepsis without a source. The key takeaway here, Swami, is you just can't rely on Charcot's triad and Renault's pentad. You need to think about cholangitis in that patient with abdominal pain, they look systemically unwell, and also keep it on your radar in that patient who looks like sepsis, but you don't have a source yet. Classic presentation falling short again. Amal always says classic means less than 10% of patients are going to have that presentation. But again, if we focus on looking at that toxic patient the one that doesn't look really well, they have abdominal pain or jaundice, let's go after the gallbladder as a possible source. It's obviously going to change our management. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But if I have suspicion, let's say I have that patient and they report abdominal pain or their family tells you they've had abdominal pain for a couple of days, they've got fever, maybe a little bit of jaundice. I know I'm going to get a bunch of blood work. I'm going to get a bunch of labs sent off, but are there specific ones that I have to make sure that I get and maybe have predictive value as to how the patient is going to do or what treatments I need to bring to that patient. We're basically going to be looking for evidence of cholestasis and inflammation. For cholestasis, we're probably going to see an elevated AST and ALT, but that degree of elevation varies. If you're seeing levels over 1,000, that points to more of a severe obstruction and septic shock from cholangitis. Other labs that you're going to see a GGT and alkaline phosphatase these are elevated in about 90%, and then bilirubin is going to be over 4 milligrams per deciliter because of that obstruction. When it comes to inflammation, I know we typically don't like to rely on that white blood cell count. This is going to be elevated in about 80% of patients, but something that might be more helpful is a high neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. It's often over 5, mainly because of that significant physiologic stress and how sick the patient is. One study found a ratio of over 5.3 had a 68% sensitivity and a specificity of about 95% in being able to predict cholangitis. The final labs are lactate because of how sick these patients are, and then you'll also want to obtain blood cultures. These are going to be positive in about 70% of patients. Money here sounds to be with those LFTs, which again makes a lot of sense. But again, that's not really going to clinch our diagnosis. We might have suspicion based on those labs, but we really want to get this diagnosis right. We want to get it right quickly. And Britt, I find that every time that I suspect cholangitis, I get the wrong imaging test. And when I say <laughs> wrong, I mean, whatever I get, somebody tells me I want this imaging test instead. And I, I want to narrow this down. What should I be getting? Obviously, x-rays, let's take those out. They're not going to help me. But ultrasound, CT, MRI. I mean, what should I be obtaining? 
in a patient where I suspect cholangitis is the source of their sepsis or the source of their presentation. Ultrasound and CT are going to be our go-to imaging tests in the ED. Ultrasound is a nice test to start off with at the bedside. We're primarily going to be looking for a dilated common bile duct over five to seven millimeters. But this is going to depend on age. And if you've had a patient, they've had a prior cholecystectomy, they can have a dilation up to 10 millimeters at baseline. The major problem with ultrasound is that it can miss cases. Now, I don't know about you, Swami. I'm not the greatest at always finding the common bile duct and then also getting a measurement. More importantly, that sensitivity of ultrasound in diagnosing a dilated common bile duct varies. It's anywhere between 38 and 91%. For common bile duct stones, ultrasound is only about 25 to 60% sensitive. So by no means is it 100%. The great aspect about ultrasound is that a single ultrasound exam is just a snapshot in time, but you could use serial ultrasound exams at the bedside to look for disease progression. If you have a first ultrasound, it's negative, but you're still suspicious, then just perform a repeat exam. Now, if you have that patient, they have undifferentiated abdominal pain, they have systemic symptoms, we're probably going to be reaching for CT with IV contrast first. Based on the available evidence, this is probably a better test compared to ultrasound. CT is more reliable for diagnosing that dilation of the intrahepatic and common bile ducts. It can diagnose a mass that's causing external compression, and it can also look for complications. There are data showing multi-detector CT with IV contrast has a sensitivity between 85 and 97% and a specificity between 88 and 96%, so it's pretty good. If the ultrasound and CT are inconclusive, but you're still thinking cholangitis is a possibility, you're going to be admitting the patient, then speak with your GI colleagues and the hospitalists because the MRCP is going to be the next line test, but normally we can't obtain that from the ED. One of the things that I, I want to make sure doesn't get lost in there is you mentioned that in patients with a cholecystectomy, they can have a dilated CBD up to 10 millimeters, which means, of course, that you don't have to have a gallbladder to have cholangitis. Let's just make sure that we're really clear about that, because I think sometimes we get lulled into that false sense of security of thinking, well, it can't be cholangitis. The patient had their gallbladder out. That's not what I'm working with. But we still have to be suspicious of that because remember, it's all those other ducts in the liver that can be the problem. And I find that I can often find the CBD, but not always. And it's harder when the patient's had a cholecystectomy. And it's particularly hard when the patient's really sick and I really need to find it. So I agree with you. I'm not going to rely on my ultrasound skills. I'm going to look because it might be give me an alternate diagnosis, something I can do quickly. But the CT scan is really where the money is. But despite that, despite how good CT scan is, you said that there are still these cases that are inconclusive, that ultrasound, CT, our labs, they can't always clinch the diagnosis. What we would like to have then is a scoring system, some scoring system where I can input everything I just got, my labs, my imaging, the patient's physical exam, their history into this scoring algorithm that then tells me, do I have cholangitis or do I not have cholangitis? Britt, make it happen. Give me that algorithm. Luckily, we have the Tokyo guidelines. These have undergone several reiterations. The most recent version was released in 2018. We can provide a table in the show notes for the listeners. But the nice thing about these guidelines is they're very straightforward. They're very easy to use at the bedside. There are basically three components for diagnosis based on the guidelines. The first one is systemic inflammation. This is going to be fever or labs with inflammation. The second one is going to be cholestasis with jaundice or elevated LFTs. And then the final one is going to be imaging. The other nice aspect about these guidelines is that they break cholangitis into these different grades based on how sick the patient is, which can help us with therapy. 
let's finish up with treatment. I've got all those inputs. I've got the labs. I've got the imaging. I put everything into those Tokyo guidelines. And now I want to give that patient the proper care. I'm going to start with resuscitation. I'm going to give them vasopressor of the hypotensive. Who should I be consulting for this patient? And this is an infectious process. I'm going to give antibiotics. Can I go with Vank and Piptazo or do I need a little bit more nuance here? You're completely right. These patients are going to be toxic. They need that supportive care and resuscitation up front. I'm going to start with the antibiotics first. We need to cover enteric streptococci, coliforms, and then also the anaerobes. There's no solid evidence for using antibiotics with high biliary penetration. That used to be a big thing with the Tokyo guidelines. The IDSA and Tokyo guidelines base their recommendations for antibiotics on the grade of cholangitis. But I'm going to try and make this easy. It gets a little bit convoluted otherwise. Several good options would be piperacillin, tazobactam, like you had mentioned. You could use a carbapenem, like ertapenem or meropenem, or you could use cefepime plus metronidazole to cover those anaerobes. MRSA is a very rare cause of cholangitis. Vancomycin is really only necessary for that patient with a healthcare-associated infection. You had asked about consultation. This is an essential component of therapy. We all know a key part of therapy for any patient with sepsis is going to be source control. For cholangitis, that's going to be biliary decompression. This is usually with ERCP as that first-line modality. ERCP does have a high success rate, and it has drastically reduced mortality due to cholangitis. There are a couple other options if this fails. One of these is going to be percutaneous drainage. This is often the next line if ERCP is not successful, or it can be the first-line modality if ERCP is not feasible. Think about that in that patient with a Roux-en-Y anastomosis, could be a Whipple resection, or duodenal narrowing. The final option is going to be surgical decompression. All of these options means we need to speak with GI, IR for all of these patients, and if that patient is sick, we need to get our surgeon and intensivist on board. That timing of decompression depends on the grade of cholangitis and how sick the patient is. If they have an organ injury, they're in shock, they need that resuscitation, they need stabilization, and then they need emergent decompression. One potential pitfall here is that we make the diagnosis, we start the antibiotics, but decompression is delayed because that patient is toxic or they're considered too sick. Then they sit up in the ICU for days without source control. We need to stabilize these patients in the ED, probably intubate them if they're going to be going for ERCP, and then get them to decompression as soon as we can for source control. For the other patients, they still need decompression, but they may not need it immediately. It's usually within 24 to 48 hours. This is going to be based on that specific grade and your consultant. The final part of our management is going to be disposition. This sounds straightforward. You have a diagnosis of cholangitis. These patients need admission but they need to be at a center where biliary drainage can be performed. So this might mean a transfer. Summary. A lot of important stuff in there for us to consider in terms of management. The main thing is getting all of those consultants on board right away so that they can have that discussion of what is best for this patient in front of us. Get the surgeon, get your GI doc, get your IR. If you don't have all those services, get that patient transferred somewhere where all of those services can be brought to the bedside for that patient to figure out the best approach for the individual patient in front of you. And I've had this happen many times where I call GI and they're like, nah, it's not really our patient. This is really more of a surgical issue. And I've just defaulted now to consulting all of them and letting them have that discussion together. But Britt, I think what we have here in this little short segment is a lot of information on distinguishing cholangitis, understanding that it is quite different from the acute cholecystitis patient. These patients in general are gonna be sick, they're gonna be toxic, but we're not gonna rely on the triads or the pentads. And instead we're gonna think, Sick, toxic patient, abdominal pain, plus or minus jaundice. I got to think about cholangitis. 
I gotta consider going after it, and my labs can help to push me towards that diagnosis, but probably imaging is gonna be even more helpful, specifically CT scan with IV contrast. Take all that information, use the Tokyo guidelines to help you determine whether you have cholangitis or not, and then do that good resuscitation, the vasopressors, the antibiotics, and getting those consultants on board for biliary decompression. Thanks for going through all of this with us. I feel now that I can have this conversation with my surgeons and with my dad and not feel embarrassed about not knowing the difference between cholangitis and cholecystitis and knowing how to manage those patients. Well, thanks, son. That's a class gesture. All right, let's ultra, ultra this thing. And the first paper let's go over is... Abstract one. The first one they did last month, which was predictors of laryngospasm during 2,700, 6,832 episodes whew, of pediatric procedural sedation in the annals of emergency medicine. Yeah, you heard it right. Over a quarter million pediatric sedations in a really good data set where you got booted out unless you gave us 90% of the uh, information about your pediatric sedation. And they, in this part, wanted to know what were the predictors of laryngospasm. And the first thing is laryngospasm was quite unusual, about 3% of the time. And in the ER, almost never occurred. And the predictors were that you were younger, had an upper respiratory tract infection, that you uh, were twiddling around with their airway as part of your procedure, and if you were using Ketafol. And then there was also a lot of places where it was more frequent, like uh, in the radiology suite, than in the ER. We don't really know. We don't have the data in this one to suggest why that is. But I think Mike's suggestion is the right one, that probably in the ER we're using big doses because we're okay taking an airway. Whereas if somebody's over in the radiology suite, they're probably using lower doses and actually giving themselves a higher rate of laryngospasm. But the important thing here is the overwhelming majority of kids that had this, they didn't need anything done to them. Anything more than like a little jaw thrust and stuff. So a fascinating, huge database that no doubt we're going to hear a lot more about. As Sanjay was asking, you, know, I want to hear about the hypotension and the hypoxia episodes and what are the predictors of those things as well. So excellent work from this team. Annals of Moon's Medicine, June 2022. Worth a read. Abstract 2. Abstract 2 was a big, important study. Restriction of intravenous fluid in ICU patients with septic shock. New England Journal of Medicine. Well done study. Multi-center, mostly throughout Europe. And they basically looked at restricting fluids in sepsis versus giving an unusual amount. Now, this has come full circle, right? We've gone from doing whatever the heck you want to flooding people with fluid, and now we're like, well, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. So on average, they gave four liters to the unrestricted group and two liters to the restricted group over four or five days, which is probably a way less than if you follow sort of the US guidelines about 30 mils per kilogram kind of stuff. But even so, there was no difference between these two groups. No difference. No difference in mortality or anything else. So this suggests that um, there's a lot of leeway when it comes to fluid in sepsis. Uh, apparently, we still don't know what we're doing, whether we should be using lots or whether we should be using little or we should be using just the right amount. Abstract three. The next paper they did was another sepsis and fluids paper, restrictive fluids versus standard care in adults with sepsis in the emergency department. The other one was in the ICU. The refaced a multi-center randomized feasibility trial Academic Emergency Medicine, June 2022. So this was a study that was looking at the feasibility of doing a restrictive uh, fluid resuscitation for sepsis patients. And they found, yes, that the uh, ER docs would actually follow the protocols pretty well. And in this study, they gave them like 500 mils of fluid versus 1300 mils of fluid. And although it wasn't sort of made to look at outcomes, there was no difference. 
So this is sort of the continuing theme we have, right? We don't know how much fluid to give. And this study says at least ER docs are prepared to try a restrictive uh, therapy. And so uh, let's keep it coming, all right? Let's keep this moving because this has been decades of us not knowing how much fluids to use when in sepsis. We've gone from do whatever you like to give lots and lots of fluid. And now we're restricting again. And maybe at the end of this process, we'll have a better idea. But how long is this process going to take? Abstract 4. Really interesting pediatric paper was Abstract 4, which was the effect of point of care testing for respiratory pathogens on antibiotic use in children, a randomized clinical trial. Big study, JAMA Open Network. This is in kids that come in that look like they have viral syndrome. You randomize them to get one of those PCRs that checks for everything versus nothing. And then you look at, well, did that reduce the amount of antimicrobials? It should, right? It did not. There was about 27, 28% in each group that still got antimicrobials. Why is that? Well, it's probably as suggested because if you've got a kid that's sick, maybe they've got a positive chest x-ray, you're going to give it anyway. It doesn't matter what the viral PCR says, whether that's correct or not. And if you've decided this kid clearly just has a virus with boogers, I'm not giving antibiotics, then you might not be able to move the needle very much. This is very different than in adults where this PCR testing in adults has been shown to significantly reduce antimicrobial therapy. In this study, in kids, it didn't. So I'm not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater here. I want to see some more bigger, more diverse populations. But it is interesting that this had, in this group, basically no effect. Fascinating. Abstract 5. Remember when TXA was working for nosebleeds and then it stopped working for nosebleeds? And we, we were told, you really don't need to do this. Well, here's a paper, intranasal topical application of TXA in atraumatic anterior epistaxis, a double-blind randomized trial. Well done, good study. And they put in some lidocaine and some phenylephrine and some TXA versus some not TXA in two randomized groups, followed them up, looked at really important outcome measures like packing, and found that the TXA is working again. This is so confusing, but this is medicine, right? So we've got another paper that's called the NOPAC trial that we've done here on the show, and it found that it didn't work. But in this group, it did. So what are you supposed to do? Well, it could be that this is not as sick a group as the NOPAC study. And it could just be some other methodological issues or selection issues we can't work out. But the fact is, unfortunately, we need more studies to know if it works. But having said that, because TXA is pretty cheap and pretty much in this circumstance without significant side effects, I'd be going back to adding some TXA to that slurry you're shoving in those people's nose. But remember this, still 50% of people ended up getting a pack. So um, there's that. That 50% seems like really high to me because you know, back in the day we were taught that if you pack somebody's nose you're a failure that what you should be doing is finding that bleeding site and cauterizing it and doing everything you can to not put a pack in but i think and this is just pure supposition on my part that the new packs these sort of tampon like devices make doing packing so easy that they're sort of the default to i'll try and stop it with some simple measures and if it doesn't work to heck with it i'll just put a pack in is that true you young people out there is that what you do now do you uh, not try and find the bleeding site and try and stop the bleeding site? What are you young people doing? Some, somebody drop me a note. What's going on out there? Abstract 6. Abstract 6 is a reminder about radiologic tests and follow-up, and it's catching those who fall through the cracks, integrating a follow-up process for emergency department patients with incidental radiologic findings, Annals of Emergency Medicine. And it's basically sort of a proof of concept. They sort of set in place a systematic way of following up abnormal radiology that wasn't necessarily something that's going to kill you today, but it's a pulmonary nodule or it's something like that. And they found that, you know, they did a really good job of following those people up and getting them plugged in for a plan. 
And so the point of doing this is to remind everybody, if you order a test, you really are responsible for following up that test. So if it's in the timeframe of the immense department, fine, but somebody, and this is uh, you, the person who ordered it, or the person who took over from you, or your department as a whole, you need a system for following up these radiological things. If you don't, people really do fall through the cracks. And sometimes they suffer terrible consequences of that. So set up a system, make it clear. You can read this article to get some ideas about how they did it. It might not work in your place, but you need to have a system here as a group. Because we order so many of these as a group, we need some way to follow them up. I could channel Jerry Hoffman here. You know the best way not to find a pulmonary nodule that means nothing? Don't order the CT scan. Oh, Jerry. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. Abstract 8. Let's jump to abstract 8. Pericapsular nerve block for hip fracture is feasible, safe, and effective in the emergency department. A prospective observational study. So, out of Australia, you know, you've got these blocks. You've got the femoral block. You've got the fasciliaca block. This is another block, a little bit different, done under ultrasound in 19 patients. Tastes great, less filling. They really felt that it was pretty good. But they do note in the paper that this was an observational study. We need some randomized studies to perhaps tell us when we should be using which one. I've got to tell you, I'm amazed now when I go and visit the colleagues in the emergency department. Their skill with ultrasound blocks is amazing. And this definitely reduces the amount of pain and uh, opioids that are required. So uh, learn those blocks because they be practically useful. And this is another one which may be coming on board, the pericapsular nerve block. Abstract 9. Abstract 9 is a really, really interesting uh, paper. It's periosteal block versus intravenous regional anesthesia for reduction of distal radius fractures, a randomized controlled trial. So this is a New Zealand study which compared a Beers block, which is, you know, get that double cuff blood pressure-like thing and you uh, anesthetize the whole arm and then you can manipulate the crap out of people's arms. And this was versus this new block. It is not a hematoma block. This is more proximal. So you come up more proximally and kind of like do a ring block around the radius. You, know, you have to go look at the pictures and stuff to check it out. But it's a new technique and it worked very well, but it was not as good as a Beers block, this regional anesthesia. But as Sanjay points out, here in the US, Beers blocks are rarely done in the emergency department. I don't know why, because even when I was training in Australia 30 years ago, this is something we did in the emergency department way back in the day in Australia and apparently in New Zealand. So this is a call for two things. This new block might be significantly better than a hematoma block, which I don't think is very good, but we should be getting those studies hopefully in the future, in which case we could stop doing the very painful hematoma block and do this block. But it also is a question as to why we don't do beer blocks here in the US. Yes, there's lots of lidocaine. Yes, the balloons can go down. And yes, every now and then somebody can get way too much lidocaine and start seizing. But it's used across the world. It's very effective. And if you have the right equipment and right training, it's very safe. So interesting on both parts, right? But first of all, go look at this periosteal block. Because if you're here in the US doing lots of hematoma blocks, you should try this out and just see if you can get as good a analgesia as you can with the old hematoma block. Look, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's time for me to say, it's over, it's done, the ultra ultra summary. It's over, it's done, the ultra ultra summary. Summer, 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 summer. There are at least you know, 10, 15 more papers that they have. You need to go listen to the whole show, you need to listen to it multiple times. If you do that, you'll be what? A literature legend, I say it every month. Do I need to stop saying it? Probably. Will I stop saying it? Probably not. Go listen to the whole show, be a literature legend, so that people will look at you as you walk by and say, there, there goes. goes. A literature legend, all full and puffy, just dripping with the knowledge that is the EMA summaries. It's over. It's done. The ultra ultra summer.
All right, Jan, we're on the other side of the program, which means it is time for the mailbag. We're going to go to the home office in Bozeman, Montana. Ah, Bozeman, Montana. I have a friend who lives there, and the pictures I see are just (laughs) absolutely beautiful. So let's just think of a river going through the mountains. Bozeman, Bozeman, Bozeman. Bozeman, Bozeman, Bozeman. Bozeman, Let me tell you about the question that we have this month from... Yes, hit us with that question. Question one. So our listener writes in and says, we have recently had several cases of patients who have presented to us with uncontrolled agitation and have not responded to standard therapy with benzos, antipsychotics, or even ketamine. We had a 17-year-old that we ultimately transferred to a tertiary care facility who placed the patient on dexmedetomidine. The patient apparently did very well and was ultimately discharged home. Is there any literature to support using dexmedetomidine for acute behavior control? What kind of monitoring is suggested? Do patients need to be intubated when using this drug? Do you know of any centers that are using this as a strategy for treating agitation that's not responding to standard therapy? It's a lot of questions. It's a lot of good questions. Jen, I don't use a lot of dexmedetomidine. I'm not that familiar with the drug in general and definitely not for sedating the agitated patient. But when we're talking about sedatives and we're talking about agitation, we have to go to Ruben Strayer. So Ruben recorded a little bit of a comment on all of these questions. Let's see what Ruben has to say. Dexmedetomidine is a drug on the rise. It has some really unique and powerful features, but has been too expensive for routine use in most emergency departments until recently, when it became generic. I suspect we're going to see more Dexmed downstairs, and this question highlights a great indication to discuss. Dexmedetomidine is an alpha-2 noradrenergic agonist approved by the FDA 20 years ago for intravenous sedation and analgesia. It reduces release of norepinephrine by the brain, inducing a light, sleep-like state from which the patient can be easily aroused. Dexmedetomidine is a close relative to clonidine. Clonidine is more vasoactive and cardiotropic, but in higher doses is sedating. Dexmedetomidine is more sedating, but in higher doses is cardiotropic and vasoactive, causing bradycardia and hypotension. But dexmedetomidine has little effect on breathing, so unlike other sedatives, clinically important respiratory depression is quite uncommon with dexmed, and it doesn't cause perceptual disturbance, so you don't see psychiatric distress on emergence, as with ketamine. Dexmedetomidine has unique non-opioid analgesic properties as well. As covered in the MRAP June 2019 mailbag, the usual use of dexmedetomidine is as an intravenous drip for post-intubation sedation in the ICU and it is guideline recommended as an infusion to treat agitation and delirium in mechanically ventilated ICU patients, specifically recommended over benzos. But Dexmed has a variety of other applications. Dexmedetomidine has been used extensively to facilitate painless procedures, including facilitating non-invasive ventilation in tolerant patients, administered similarly to how it's used as an ICU sedative, as an intravenous bolus followed by a drip. It works quite well for these indications, safe and effective, but it takes time to work and titrate. In the emergency department, it has been well reported for use as a single slow bolus over a few minutes for procedural sedation, and it takes four or five minutes to work, sometimes in combination with ketamine. This is called ketodex, a really nice combination because the sympatholytic and calming effects of dexmedetomidine counteract the sympathomimetic and sometimes agitating psychoperceptual effects of ketamine and using them in tandem makes more sense than the much more popular combination of ketamine and propofol, ketofol, because ketamine and dexmed have similar pharmacokinetics, whereas propofol disappears in three minutes. Dexmedetomidine has been used as a drip to treat alcohol withdrawal and opioid withdrawal, which makes a lot of sense because these are hyperadrenergic states. 
do not use dexmedetomidine as monotherapy to treat alcohol withdrawal. It should be combined with a GABAergic agent like a benzodiazepine or phenobarb. Now, coming to the question of using dexmedetomidine for agitation. The major problem with dexmedetomidine for emergency medicine is that when used as a drip, it is not rapid on, rapid off, and titration requires patience and careful attention, which ICUs are very good at, but we're not. It is often given as a loading dose over 10 minutes preceding an infusion to hasten its onset. The loading dose has fallen out of favor in hemodynamically tenuous sick patients because of hypotension and bradycardia. But if you have an IV and want to use it as the primary calming medication in a hyperadrenergic agitated patient, a quick bolus is the only way to do this. You can't administer anything over 10 minutes to an agitated patient. Unfortunately, administering rapid intravenous boluses of dexmedetomidine is almost without description in the literature. There are pediatric anesthesia studies that show that quick boluses of up to one microgram per kilogram are safe and effective in the operating room. So in otherwise healthy agitated adults, a quick bolus of something like 50 or 100 micrograms IV would probably be safe and may be effective, but we don't know, and this can't be recommended outside of a study. But there are a variety of other ways to administer dexmedetomidine. It is well-absorbed intranasally and via nebulization and has demonstrated efficacy in pediatric procedural sedation via these routes. Dexmed is poorly absorbed when swallowed, but can be administered intramuscularly, sublingually, and buccally. Intramuscular dexmedetomidine has been used to facilitate painless procedures, such as imaging studies, in pediatrics, and also as a premedication for general anesthesia at doses of 0.5 mics per kilo to 4 mics per kilo, usually about 2 mics per kilo intramuscular. Sublingual dexmedetomidine is a new preparation, the trade name is Igalmi, that has demonstrable efficacy in agitation from bipolar disease or schizophrenia. This isn't that useful to emergency medicine because most moderately to severely agitated patients are not going to agree to take a sublingual film, but we may see a role for this in more mildly agitated patients. You could use an ICU-like titration protocol on an agitated patient, though probably not as your primary calming med because it takes too long. But for a patient who is well-managed with boluses of some other sedative, but every time that sedative wears off, the agitation returns, assuming that you haven't missed a reversible, treatable cause of agitation, it is quite reasonable to use a dexmedetomidine drip as long as that patient is in a recess bed. Dexmedetomidine can certainly be used on non-intubated patients and is in fact safer from a respiratory perspective than many alternatives. But anyone on a dexmedetomidine drip requires critical care type monitoring for bradycardia, hypotension, over sedation. Where I'm excited about dexmedetomidine as a treatment for agitation is as an intramuscular dose. Calming medications should be generally administered IM. It's not good practice to hold down an agitated patient to start a line. And dexmedetomidine is one of the medications where slow absorption is actually of benefit. There are other examples of this like epinephrine, ketamine, naloxone, and buprenorphine, where slower absorption is better. And the intramuscular route does this for you. Intramuscular allows quick administration but slow absorption. The closest data on using intramuscular dexmedetomidine for agitation is an emergency department case series of eight children with autism spectrum disorders requiring urgent sedation who were treated with dexmedetomidine four mics per kilogram and it worked well and safely, though slowly, with an induction time around 30 minutes. No significant adverse effects. 
Intramuscular dexmedetomidine might be a terrific sedative for the disruptive alcohol-intoxicated patient, which is a case presentation many of us have the pleasure of managing very frequently. Many agitated drunk patients require calming medications, but many of them will come in, have an outburst, and then just fall asleep. And when they wake up, they're fine. We just need these guys to fall asleep. Once they're asleep, the alcohol will keep them asleep until the alcohol is metabolized, at which point they will wake up, usually much more pleasant. Alcohol-intoxicated patients are at risk for hypoventilation, and dexmedetomidine does not cause hypoventilation, unlike benzodiazepines. A single IM shot of dexmedetomidine has a comparatively brief duration of action. So, in theory, it would safely cause your drunk, agitated patient to fall asleep, and then it would disappear, and that patient would wake up when adequately metabolized without having their length of stay prolonged by the sedative required to treat their agitation. But we're not going to put lines and certainly not start drips on most of these patients. We want efficacy after a single IM shot which may or may not work. This is based entirely on theory with zero directly supporting data, but there is a good deal of related data and experience to suggest it would work. So if anyone is using intramuscular dexmedetomidine in this way, please report on your experience or message me. Until then, dexmedetomidine may be a safe and effective second-line treatment for agitation that is inadequately responsive to usual sedatives. Use it as a conventional, slowly titrated drip probably after a bolus, as long as the patient is being carefully monitored. So that was awesome. Thanks, Ruben. We actually just got this drug approved for use in the ED at my institution, so I have no experience with it yet, but I'm looking forward to using it, and this was a really helpful piece. I do want to point out one thing for people who don't know, which is that sublingual dexmedetomidine is available for use in dogs. It's got a brand name. It's called Saleo. It's used for dogs who are afraid of fireworks and afraid of loud noises. I used it in my dog this 4th of July, and it was super effective. And I thought to myself, why don't we use this this way in humans? So thanks for addressing it, Ruben. Absolutely. That's uh, very cool. And I guess maybe sublingual dexmedetomidine is the next thing we need to get into a little bit more and find out where the role is for us as emergency providers, aside from giving it to our own dogs on the 4th of July. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, that's the mailbag. Don't forget to keep those letters coming. That's not actually accurate, you know. Bozeman, 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 murdered by his brosman. Nobody knows for shortsman. Montana. Montana was not a state when he died. It said that he was dirty, and yes, a wee bit flirty, and that is what got him in the end. Actually, there are differing accounts of why. No, it's not. Yes, it is. That's the truth. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Montana. It's the truth. Stop it. Look it up. I did. That's why you think I. Bozeman, Montana. Monster. Like that? <laughs> all right, Jan, it is time for the mega summary. We're going to drop into a little quick review of all of our segments for the month, starting with the rural medicine piece. Rural medicine talks. Yeah, this month, Vanessa talked to a doctor named Ben Maddie, who told us a story of a patient with severe facial neck arm burns that was really dramatic. Of course, this is in a rural place, which is, you know, at least 30 minutes from a level two trauma center. And they get a call that there's this critically ill burn patient coming in who's being bagged and they have no IV access. 
and this patient's face is all burned. So luckily it happened right at sign out. So they had some extra hands on boards. They make their team assignments. They're concerned, rightly so, about the airway. So they have one of the doctors at the head of the bed with a plan to do airway and a bunch of backups. And then they have another person ready to go surgical airway if needed. And one of the pearls in here was to really, you know, there's a lot of energy going on to calm your team down before the arrival of the EMS folks to start from a place of calm because you know that it's going to get chaotic. So try to get everybody kind of settled down to hear that EMS report. These EMS guys roll in with this patient who is burned and charred all over his face, neck, etc. Unfortunately, it was a, such a sad story. It was a homeless guy sleeping on a bench that someone had poured lighter fluid on him and set him on fire. Just a terrible story. And it was really shocking. This guy's nose was burned off, the lips were charred, and the face was completely unrecognizable. They have no idea how old this person is. The only vital sign they had was a sinus tachycardia in the 180s. They had no blood pressure since the arms were burned, but they could palpate pulses in all extremities. And that becomes important later to keep reassessing those pulses. And so they walk us through what they did step by step. And they got the IV access. They gave him up front a big slug of ketamine, which is, you know, give that early. It's have some mercy for pain control, et cetera. Took a look in the airway. It was erythematous. It was no good, but they actually passed a bougie and were able to intubate. So they had to upgrade their IV access. They walk us through all the things they did, started propofol fentanyl. Of course, the burn center turns out to be full and they have to find a critical care burn unit. But the burn intensivist was very helpful of their phone and gave lots of good advice. So they kept repeating labs, repeating their fast exam continuously reassessing and caring for the patient. And later, the radial pulse drops out and they end up doing an escherotomy with the burn intensivist walking him through it. And that was really interesting to talk through that. And unfortunately, of course, this patient had a very grim prognosis and went into multi-organ failure and died. But it was a really good case of how you work through one of these complex burn patients that has so many challenges in the care and the resuscitation. David Gatz. All right, Jan, our next piece is one of two that we have this month on transplant care. We talked to David Getz about cardiac transplant challenges. Again, this was one that a listener wrote in with a question and it set off us getting into this topic. And David talks about all of the different anatomical changes that happen with a transplant, the denervation, because you're removing those parasympathetic vagal fibers, but the fact that some patients actually will renervate after they get that transplant. So it's something to kind of think about. And one of the big questions that the listener had was, how do I know if my post-transplant patient is having a heart attack, if they've got abnormal innervation to that heart. And David says, you know, this is a real challenge. Some patients will get that renervation. They'll have typical symptoms, but things like fatigue and shortness of breath or any exertional symptoms makes him think ACS right away in these transplant patients. So right off, I think that is a great pearl for us to take in. The next thing is he talks about the ECG and there are some changes that happen with the ECG post-transplant having to do with the position of the heart and things like that. But ischemic changes are going to look very similar to the non-transplant patient. So we can still rely on that ECG to help us to determine if the patient is actually having a STEMI or something along those lines. And then from there, we get into the immunomodulators, all of the medications that these patients have to be on. The sequelae of that, they're at a much higher risk for infection. David actually says, I could talk about CMV for three hours in the transplant patient, But we kind of boiled it down to just a couple of minutes just for us to remember that CMV infections are really common in these patients, although much less so than it used to be because we've got good antivirals now. And then finally, David talks about rejection, how obviously we can't miss those signs of rejection, what to be looking for, who to contact, and how to manage these patients. It's a great piece. 
I don't work at a transplant center. So when we do see these, they are a little bit new to us. So I think this is a great review. I think if you work at a place where you see them all the time, you probably know a lot of this stuff. But most of us don't work at a transplant center. So we're seeing them here and there. You know, in the ED, we're seeing them with complications. So, I mean, there's just so many good pearls in this piece. The interesting thing is that if you work at a transplant center in the ED, the first thing you do when these patients hit the door is you call your transplant team. Right. If you work someplace where you don't have the transplant team, the first thing you want to do is to call the transplant team at the other hospital because there's so much that they can give. And it's not that we just want to defer and just ask them, what should I do? But we want them involved because let's be honest, Jen, this is what they do. They eat, breathe, and live these patients. They're so attached to their patients, especially the cardiac transplant patients, and there's so much they can give us. So just like that burn patient, I do get on the phone with the transplant team as quickly as I can just to help guide me through what it is that I need to be looking out for. I've never worked in a burn center, Jen, but when I've seen these bad burns, I always get on the phone with the burn intensivist early because there's so much they can give us. There's so much they can do over the phone to guide us. And now with, with video, it's even easier for them to help us with that management when we can't get the patient to them right away. So I think that is a critical step in management here, but you're right. These are important cases for us to think through and just kind of visualize what are the next problems that I'm going to run into? Because if I can anticipate those problems, I can be ready to manage them as soon as they come up. What a difficult, tough case. It would be a tough case to manage in my inner city hospital with every consultant on board, much harder as always in a rural setting. But uh, these guys did obviously a fantastic job of taking care of the patient. Critical care. Mailbag. Our next piece was the critical care mailbag. He means the devil's advocate. Come on. With Scott Weingart talking about the shock index and something a little bit new to me, the diastolic shock index. This was prompted by a listener who went to a conference and heard about the diastolic shock index and said, is this something that I should be doing? Just as a little bit of background, when we talk about shock index, we're talking about heart rate over systolic blood pressure. The diastolic shock index, it's the same thing. It's the heart rate over the diastolic blood pressure. The question is whether it actually gives us some different information that we can use. And the short of the long is Scott's not a huge fan. He doesn't think that there's enough evidence to really tell us that this is something that can really be beneficial to us, that we can be really using to guide management. But it's not unreasonable to keep it in the back of your head and say, wow, that diastolic shock index over 2.5 is bad. It's bad. The patient's sick. It's kind of the same thing you learn from a shock index. Not sure how much it really gives us. And it's a lot of math, Jan. I don't need to learn more equations and more math to do. So I'm going to keep it simple with the shock index. And then we ended that critical care mailbag with a little bit of a devil's advocate about the FAST exam. And Scott kind of weighs in on the pro-con that we had with Justin Morgenstern and Jacob Avila talking about where we should be using the FAST, how we should be using the FAST, and how it can really inform our care. Scott always has lots of good pearls and opinions on these kinds of things. And I agree with the math comment for sure. I do not want to do a bunch of math when I'm looking at vital signs, but you know, vital signs are vital and there are these subtle things that you can find within them to give you clues about someone's condition, like our case in the introduction this month. Dr. Amol Matu. Next up was Britt Guest talking to Amol Matu about left bundle branch block and ischemia or STEMI, and they really launch into a more detailed discussion about, of course, the Scarbosa criteria, because we know that diagnosing STEMI in patients with left bundle and even paste rhythms can be quite challenging. You know, the Scarbosa criteria only came out in 1996. It wasn't that long ago. And when they first came out, there were three criteria. The first two are really good and we still use today. The third one is the one that got modified more recently by Steve Smith et al. And we now use the modified Scarbosa criteria. But just to walk you through, remember what the Scarbosa criteria are. And Amal refers to them as Scarbosa A, B, and C. 
But Scarbosa A is a concordant ST elevation of at least one millimeter and at le- in at least one lead. It can be any lead. Scarbosa B is concordant ST depression of at least one millimeter, and that's in leads V1 through V3. You have to have at least one lead that has that concordant ST depression. And Scarbosa C is the one that was recently modified, and now it's modified to read that it's excessive discordance. And what it is, it's actually proportional excessive discordance. It's ST elevation and at least one lead anywhere as defined by at least 25% of the depth of the preceding S wave. So that's some math that we have to do. We have to at least look at it. We have to look at this 25%. Maybe that's one reason I have a hard time remembering this one, but it's proportional discordance in one lead. And that's what we have to look at. They also walk us through how you can use the Scarbosa criteria with patients who are paced. And remember that this is particularly in patients who have a right ventricular lead pacer because they have an artificial left bundle branch block. It doesn't apply to people who have biventricular pacers other types, but most people have right ventricular lead pacers. So you can use the Scarbosa. There was a paper that came out last year by Dobbs et al. And they concluded that you can use Scarbosa A with no modifications. You can use Scarbosa B actually But it doesn't have to be limited to V1 to V3. It applies to all of the precordial leads, V1 to V6, that you can look for that concordant ST depression. And then modified C remains unchanged. So some good little pearls there about using Scarbosa in paced rhythms. And they also reminded us that there's a new corpendium chapter on EKG diagnosis of MI by Mel that has a lot of good images. So if you want a place to go to look some of the things up and see some EKGs, you can go there. This is really important work that Scarbosa started, and then Steve Smith kind of helped, kind of push it along, give us a little bit more information. And I agree with you, the math, it's not hard math to do, but it's hard math sometimes to remember what to do. And so, Jan, I don't remember. I don't remember at all. I just remember where to find the modified Scarbosa criteria. I've got it on my phone. I know exactly where it is so that anytime I have a patient with a left bundle branch block who's coming in with things that are concerning for ACS, I just pull up the little image that Steve Smith has created. And then I work through it. It's just a little bit of math, but I don't want to memorize it. I don't want to get it wrong because my memory was incorrect. I'm just going to have it in my external brain, know exactly where to find it. And there are a couple of these cases where I picked it up. I've called cardiology and they said, what's modified Scarbosa? But that has become fewer and fewer (laughs) over the years. And now I've called and they said, did you do your modified Scarbosa? And I'm like, yes, yes, I did do my modified Scarbosa. And Steve Smith is crying a little bit right now. Tears of joy that you are asking me to do a modified Scarbosa. But this is the way that we can really provide that better care to patients. And the fact that it's crossing over and the cardiology folks know about it too makes our life a lot easier to be able to call. And that paced rhythm stuff is really important. I want to see more data on it, but I think this is a good way for us to help that patient group where I think before, Jan, I don't know about you, but I kind of just threw up my hands and said, I don't know, maybe it's ischemia. I'll wait till I get a troponin. And now we can actually look a little bit closer and maybe catch some of these before that troponin comes back. Yep. Andrew Petrosoniak. Our next segment was with Andrew Petrosoniak talking about the massive hemorrhage protocol, not massive transfusion protocol. And that's one of the big things that, that Andrew starts off with. We're really switching the terminology because it's not just about transfusion. It's about how we manage the massive hemorrhage patient. And that includes transfusion, but it's not just transfusion. There are other things that are involved in that process. He starts by talking about the decision to activate massive hemorrhage protocol very similar to the decision process of activating massive transfusion. 
Some of the scores that we have fall short a little bit, but he really likes the rabbit score, revised assessment of bleeding and transfusion. Of course, it's in the show notes, so don't worry about trying to memorize that. We talk a bit about a stat pack, which we also discussed with Scott Weingart back in July. And this is the pack that gets you two units of uncross-matched PRBCs and two units of FFP. And what Scott and Petro both say is you start that stat pack. And as soon as you're reaching for FFP, that's your trigger for massive transfusion. If you just give the two units of red cells and they look pretty stable, you can probably hold off and you don't need to activate massive transfusion and all of the rigmarole that comes with that. And then he goes into the other pieces of massive hemorrhage, the tranexamic acid, keeping the patient warm, making sure that you're balancing your ratio. And then Jan, one of my favorite questions to ask all of these really smart folks is when do you give calcium? And Petro says, you know, we don't have good hard and fast rules. So I just made up my own. I made up my own good, hard, fast rule so I don't forget to give calcium. And what he usually says is once you have that patient who's bleeding out, give him calcium right away. And then after every third unit of PRBCs, you probably want to give some more calcium. And that's his trigger. Give one right away when you start transfusing. And then every three to six units of PRBCs, give some more calcium. That way you make sure you don't fall behind. So you, did you make that that, that calcium no, rule? That's Petros. Or was Petros? No, that's Petro. Okay. I'm not smart enough to do that, Jan. That's Petro. All right. But that's the one I lock in because okay. it's really easy. Every three units, I'm going to give some calcium. All right. Petros rule, calcium every third unit. There you go. There's your, <laughs> song. There's your song. Not nearly as good as our pros will make, but Petros rule, calcium every third unit. You, bring me the whip fisher. Stat. All right. Now that brings us to a very different segment, Jan. The one that you mentioned up front insects and enemas. This is our MacGyver hacks with Whit Fisher. And I know people are disappointed. The insect was not replacing the enema and the enema was not getting the insect out. These were two separate segments. Now we can say that. But what Whit gets into is something that he calls the enhanced enema. The issue being that you have these patients who come in, they clearly need an enema, but they can't hold it in long enough for it to do its job. So the hack that he does is he places a Foley catheter into the rectum, slowly inflates the balloon, and then pushes the enema through the Foley catheter. And that helps to retain the enema long enough that it actually does its job. And of course, he warns us, when you drop that balloon, you better get out of the way because there's going to be a rush of stuff that you don't want on you. It's In so spite gross. of the rush of stuff, that is the end point we want to get to, Jan. And anything I can do to improve the quality, the delivery of that enema, I am all for. So I love this tip. I haven't had a chance to use it yet but I absolutely can't wait to use it. And then the second really? one we'll talk about- Really? You can't, I can't wait, wait to use it? I can't wait to, to because how many times <laughs> so that I've seen someone who's constipated, I can't do it with digital disinfection. I give them the enema and the enema just comes right back out. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I didn't do anything here. I haven't helped the patient. So I can't wait. I mean, not that disimpaction is one of the things that I love to do, but you know what? Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do the dirty work, Jim. You're a good man. You're a good man, Swami. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. When I said- I can't wait to do it. What I meant is I can't wait to tell one of my residents. Exactly. No, I would never. I, <laughs> I would definitely. I would definitely. And then the second one is, again, getting something out of a place that it's not supposed to be, or at least you don't want it to stay, which is insect removal from the external auditory canal. And Witt talks about step one, which is you got to kill the insect. Don't try to remove it when it's still alive. You don't want that. So kill the insect. You can't drown an insect. He talks about why you can't drown an insect, which is Really very interesting, but you can kill it with some lidocaine or some mineral oil. And then for the actual removal, Witt likes using a Fraser suction catheter, which we've talked about in the past. If you have those in your department, there's a lot of places these can be really useful. 
And then the last thing, which, which I asked him because I've heard people talk about it back and forth is, do you need to give antibiotics to these patients? And he's like, well, if you get the bug out and the external canal doesn't look too bad, you don't need to give prophylactic antibiotics. But you know, there's a bunch of scratches and it's red and inflamed, a couple of drops for a couple of days, not such a bad idea. I think this is a great segment. I mean, where I work, we see a lot of these insects in the external auditory canal. And you know, people come in there in such distress. I mean, it is so awful to have this happen. So you got to know what you're doing pretty quick. You don't want to fart around too much. So, you know, kill the insect, do it quick. Kill the insect. Yeah. Once you kill it, people are so much more comfortable. Exactly. Exactly. Just get to that part of it quick and then worry about the rest of it later. You know, just get in there and get that thing stopped. Stop the movement from happening. Dr. Eileen Claudius with some pediatric pearls. In our next piece, we are continuing the transplant theme, and we had Eileen Claudius talk to Tim Rattan and Brittany DeFabio of UT Austin, and they talked about kids with transplants, and they did discuss cardiac transplants a bit, and some of the concepts overlap, but there are a lot of interesting extra pearls here in this pediatric piece. One is about just how kids are different than adults in general, meaning that you know, you don't always get the history from kids about how they're feeling or what sensations they're having. And so just the history can be challenging alone. So they start with just a general approach to fever in a kid with a history of transplant. They walk through that timeline of what they're at risk for at different points along the way. And they just remind us that if a patient, even with a transplant, is septic, you're going to treat them like you would treat anyone else. They remind us that kids on immunosuppressant medications may not mount a leukocytosis or even manifest an elevated CRP. There are papers to say that this is true. So that could be falsely reassuring. So sending cultures, giving antibiotics, being conservative would still be advised. They talk about renal transplants quite a bit because this is one of the more common ones that we see in our kids and our adult patients. And they remind us that patients can have recurrence of their primary disease that caused the renal failure in the first place and caused them to get the transplant. So to screen them for renal failure for multiple reasons, not just rejection, but also it could be recurrence of their primary condition. Small changes in creatinine, especially in kids who already have pretty low creatinines, can be really significant in these kids. So be sure to look back at their historical values. And even if it's a minor increase that you normally would kind of blow off, talk to the transplant team to make sure that that's not a sign of some kind of impending rejection. UTIs are very common, equal incidence among males and females in this population. They're going to require treatment. And if they have pilo, they get antibiotics, IV antibiotics, and get admitted. In terms of emergent treatment, IV fluids are fine in these renal kids. They advise holding steroids until you talk to that transplant team. And then beware of nephrotoxicity concerns, mostly because not of the renal graft itself, that's a concern, but the medication interactions with all of their immunosuppressants. There are lots of seemingly benign drugs that can interact with those kind of heavy-duty meds, so you want to check with your pharmacist or transplant team. Medication-wise, again, they're on the triple therapy. They walk us through some of the side effects to be aware of especially with the calcineurin inhibitors. That's the tacrolimus or the cyclosporin. These are very nephrotoxic. We want to watch for renal failure. These kids should not be on NSAIDs. They can get hypertensive emergencies and they are at risk for press, the posterior reversible encephalopathy that they can get as well. So they need an MRI if they're altered. They also walk us through acute graft versus host disease and chronic graft versus host disease. And the bottom line here is that both can have skin findings. The acute one can look like Stevens-Johnson. The chronic one can look more chronic. They both can have GI symptoms, and the chronic one can also have some concerning pulmonary findings as well. And then don't forget, finally, that these kids can get neoplastic changes after their transplants, and that's called PTLD, post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease. Most of these are due to EBV infection, so try to remember to send EBV titers. 
There's a lot of good reminders in these two segments because like you said, we don't deal with these patients a lot. I think actually that I see more kids with transplants than I see adults with transplants, especially some of these bone marrow transplants. And it's really why, Jan, I mean, I hate to keep saying it. If the kid comes in with a sprained ankle, okay, maybe I'm not calling the transplant team for that one. But almost every other complaint, I'm going to check in. I don't think that there's much downside to giving them a call and saying, hey, kid came in with this, anything I need to be looking out for. Sometimes they're just like, you know what? I'm in the hospital. Let me just drop down and say hello to the family. Let me see the kid and make sure there's nothing else going on. And I appreciate having that input. Yes, sometimes there's a little bit of more of a delay, but if we can save the patient a little bit of time, a little bit of anxiety over what's going on, and sometimes just catch something that we weren't looking for, I think it's worthwhile. Great our, our final piece for the month, Jan, is on ascending cholangitis. This is such a bread and butter emergency medicine topic, but I will be honest on this one. This was prompted by the fact that I have this real mental block of differentiating ascending cholangitis and cholecystitis. I don't know why my mind likes to confuse them. And so I just asked Britt Long and I'm like, Britt, let's just get on the phone. Let's talk about ascending cholangitis so that I am clear on what we're talking about. And really the big thing here from a pathophysiology standpoint is that the infection isn't just in the gallbladder as we often see with cholecystitis. This is really something that is spread to the biliary system. And so it can then spread into the bloodstream and cause more problems down the line. And the vast majority of these patients will look pretty sick when you see them. Unfortunately, when we look at the history and the physical exam, they can be very variable in their presentation. The things that we were taught, Charcot's triad, Reynolds, Pentad, we're not going to see them that often. That's, that's the honest truth. We just don't see them often enough for us to rest our hat on it. Fever is pretty common. Abdominal pain is almost always there, but not always there. And jaundice is pretty common too, but it really is putting all of these different things together, not relying just on the triad or the Pentad, but also some of these other features to say, hey, Maybe I need to think about ascending cholangitis as why this patient is looking so sick. And the time that I found that I missed a Jan is in the patient who comes in with overwhelming sepsis and I do everything except I don't really find a source. And I'm like, I don't know what the source is. And then two days later, somebody says, oh, look, it was ascending cholangitis. We missed that. And I think that that's important for us to remember as a real important cause of sepsis, of septic shock and to go looking for it. And when we get into looking for it, Unfortunately, ultrasound, not as good as it is for cholecystitis. It's the go-to for cholecystitis, right? We talk about how ultrasound is better than CT. We talked about that last month with Ali Raja and Jess Mason. Here, CT is really the superior study. So if you are worried about acute cholangitis, and honestly, Jan, if you're worried about intra-abdominal sepsis, go ahead and get the CT scan with contrast. That's really where you're going to get the win. Your consultants may ask for other imaging studies down the line. But the CT with contrast is really the big one to get the diagnosis and move forward. There are some Tokyo guidelines that you can use to help clinch the diagnosis, but honestly, imaging really is the big help here. And then as far as treatment, it's supportive care from our standpoint. Broad-spectrum antibiotics, resuscitate them with fluids and vasopressors, some symptomatic management, and then we want to do some consultation. We definitely want GI. Obviously, these patients are going to need critical care, and that can help to guide what the next steps are to relieving the problem that the patient has. Yeah, this can't, I agree with you, this can be a tough diagnosis, especially in an, you know, an altered septic, you know, I'm not sure what the source is. It's a source to keep in mind. And I think that key about the CT scan versus the ultrasound, you know, if they do happen to come in with right upper quadrant pain, you know, you usually go for that ultrasound first, but if they look really sick, you know, just keep in mind that they, you may want to start with that CT because it is a better study for this particular diagnosis and broadening your differential diagnosis in general. So that is, I think, one of the take-homes for me. It's a good reason, again, to get good at ultrasound because you can do that point-of-care ultrasound, look at the gallbladder and say, I'm not finding the answer. 
And so you can skip waiting for that radiology department ultrasound and just go right to CT. Absolutely. Oh, and one more thing. The Reynolds Pentad. So that was invented by this guy named Telfer Reynolds, who was at uh, county at our county hospital. He was a when I was a medical student, he was already an old man with white hair. He's very tall. And he'd walk through the halls and he'd say, that's Telfer Reynolds. He's the one from Reynolds Pentad. And he was like a very nice man. Like a lot of these people are that discover these, you know, that name these famous things. So anyway, I've seen Telfer Reynolds of Reynolds Pentad. <laughs> very cool. I, you know, I like those stories of, you know, somebody found this for a reason. And my guess is that back in Reynolds, Dr. Reynolds time, these patients came in closer to the end. Yeah. And they were very sick. And probably all of them had Reynolds Pentad when they were seeing them. Now we see patients a lot earlier. And that's probably why we don't see the full Pentad. Yeah. And they didn't have all these imaging techniques to kind of get at the diagnosis. So you're right. You know, they would progress a lot further along the spectrum before anyone could do anything about it. So you're right. Some of these things are kind of historical in nature. And that kind of brings us to the end of the month, Jen, the end of November, the end of all of our great segments, our great content. And I'll be honest with you, Jen, as always, it was so lovely to be back doing this with you. I'm so happy to have you back on the show. I know it was only a month, only a month apart, but it felt a lot longer. <laughs> It is a pleasure to be back. And thanks for this month off. I needed a little break and I got it. And I'm feeling really re-energized and I can't believe that it's close to the end of the year. I mean, we're going to be doing December the next time we see each other. And that's just crazy. Yep. And that also means we're going to be doing our year in review, all of our MRAPIs, our awards, all of the fun songs and skits. And since this is the November episode, if anybody out there has a request and say, this is the one that I loved, let us know. Send an email over to our support team. Tell us this is the one that you loved, and we will make sure to get it the MRAPI it deserves. Absolutely. I love the MRAPIs. I can't wait. <laughs> I'm going to be wearing a gown. You better be wearing a tux. You know. I mean, no one's going to be able to see it. So yes, <laughs> I always wear a tux when we record. I'm wearing one right now. <laughs> oh, look. My nose. What's happened? All right, Swami, that's the end. Thanks very much. All right. Don't forget out there to keep doing what you do, because what you do matters. Next time on MRAP. You've now interacted with them as a person, not just as a patient. And I think that makes all the difference in the world to these people. Oh, by the way, she's 800 pounds. And so we're going to have to get a bariatric stretcher from another town, which means our ETA will actually be closer to 30 minutes. I feel like I should know what that is because everyone else is using it. Burnout creep is like barnacles attaching themselves to a ship. Each one is tiny, but the buildup can be disastrous to the vessel in the end. The barnacles are having a great time, though. You guys excited for some November events? Sure you are. Well, if you're in the home office in Bozeman, Montana on November 4th, country music legend Dusty Dilsnick will be performing at the 49er Diner Bar and Casino on 404 East Park Street in Livingston, Montana. He might be performing No. Try this word out, girl. A song about not doing stuff. No. No. Also, we're assuming he's scheduling his performance to coincide with the 100-year anniversary of the discovery of King Tut's tomb by acclaimed Egyptologist Howard Carter. Yeah, Carter broke into Tut's tomb and opened his sarcophagus to find two more sarcophagi and then the body. 
What a guy. And then November 11th, the Bozeman Chamber of Commerce is having its leads group, which is a quote, face-to-face -face networking opportunity to exchange business leads with non-competing industries. So we're assuming that means that if you sell beef, you can meet up with the local endoscope manufacturers because they're not competing industries and exchange consumer lists, <laughs> right? Because all those consumers eating steak are going to get gurged. They're going to need someone to look down there. Esophaguses, esophagi. Esophagi? Esophagi. Esophagi. Like sarcophagi. Which is why it's such a coincidence that the event is being held on the 347th anniversary of the death of Sir Thomas Willis, discoverer of achalasia, a rare disorder that occurs from damage to the nerves in the esophagus, making it difficult for food and liquid to pass from it into the stomach. Yes. Thanks, Sir Thomas Willis. What a guy. Okay, that's becoming annoying. Speaking of food passing into the stomach from the esophagus, November 18th is Thanksgiving at the Elm at 506 North 7th Avenue in Bozeman, Montana. Yeah, it's a 1970s themed dance party where everyone grooves out and pays tribute to the 1870s. What? You know, giving thanks that they weren't sailing around the Cape of Good Hope aboard the Cospatrick. It caught fire on this very day in 1874. There were 473 passengers, and out of five lifeboats, only two made it into the water, and then one was lost at sea, and then eight days later, on November 21st, the survivors had resorted to cannibalism to stay alive, drinking the blood and eating the livers of their deceased compatriots. Ah, uh, the anthropophagus, when man eats man. What? Cannibalism, an anthropophagus is a cannibal. The Cospatrick survivors were reduced to anthropophagi. What a bunch of guys. Can you stop that? Also, let's give a shout out to renowned herpetologist Romulus Whitaker, whose 2009 TED Talk in November about saving the snakes of India featured the King Cobra, the only member of the Ophiophagus genus, named after the Ophiophagi, or snake eaters from ancient Greece. What? What a guy. Ah, stop that. Sarcophagi, esophagi, what a guy. What a guy. What a guy. Sarcophagi, esophagi, what a guy. What a guy. Sarcophagi, Ophiophagi, anthropophagi, esophagi. Don't forget November 21st at the Water's Edge Winery and Bistro. Hey, I want to know the guy that you know. It's Mimosa I, Monday. I bet he's better than my brother Bruno. Who's always skipping this? I, you know. Wait, no, breakfast. You know, Bruno, never gonna eat no this. I, you know. Now hold on, and we don't have to listen to that. November 21st is also the 27th anniversary of the death of the Canadian actor Bruno Santos Garusi. I suppose it's all I can expect from a, a fiddle-footed Greek beach rat. Bruno was on the show Beachcombers. What kind of beach rat? And coincidentally played the Greek Nick Adonidas. You have insulted the Greek race. Who is not a snake eater, but who is also very proud to be Greek. Leonidas of Sparta would not have stood for And I, Nick Adonidas, will not stand for. <laughs> Happy November, everybody. Get out! <laughs> <laughs>